Good evening, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Aid Radio. February the 5th, 2014. I hope you're doing very well. My thanks to the World Affairs Conference, who dragged me out of bed with four security guards and an Alsatian at an ungodly hour this Tuesday? Tuesday morning. Uh, it was actually it was a real pleasure to be able to speak with these fresh-faced, eager young people whom the world has, let, uh, has yet to leave a smoking, sooty footprint on their heart of hopes and ambitions. Uh, so uh, it was a real pleasure to chat with them, and thank you so much for the opportunity, and uh, hope to go back. It is Canada's oldest annual student-run current affairs conference, and um, I got to speak about the drug war, which was, um, I think, useful. I hope useful. And um, I think it was a pretty good speech. We'll get that up. And other than that... I guess we'll move on to the listeners. I'm a tad under the weather. Why? Because I visited, foolishly visited, the medieval torture pit of biochemical warfare known as a children's play center. And uh, the last time uh, that, uh, last two times I went, I've gotten sick both times. Not sure why. But anyway, so um, I will, <coughs> excuse me, I will, I may not go the full uh, time because I also am going to do Peter Schiff's show in the morning. I need to save the smoking remnants of my voice, but let's move on to Colo number uno. All right, Nate, you're first. Go ahead, Nate. Hello, Steph. Hi, Nate. Hello. <laughs> uh, hopefully you get feeling better soon. Oh, and, thank you. Uh, I first want to uh, tell you thank you. Uh, yeah, no problem. Uh, thank you. I received an email recently after I sent a donation that uh, contained the revolution and some of the chapters of your book. Their parenting book with your reading, so I wanted to thank you, not per in person, but over the phone, I guess, for that. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for your support. <laughs> no, that's, that's my pleasure. Um, and also, I want to share an experience with you I had uh, last summer when I watched your YouTube video that you put out of when you found out of uh, your diagnosis with cancer. I was sitting in my car, of all places, outside of a Walmart parking lot. And I heard that, and I felt really sad, and uh, started crying. And at that point, and what was going through my mind was, I mean, of all the people that have <laughs> something really challenging in their life to happen to, uh, happen to you, it was quite um, emotional for me to hear that. But uh, yeah, then your message at the end, you were talking about moving forward. Oh, no, no. <laughs> it was uh, uplifting at the end. You talked about uh, moving forward and what your plans were and everything. So I just want to share that. Yeah, I mean, I was I was quite lucky in that I genuinely refused to accept that that was going to be my end game. You know, I, I and and this has nothing to do with belief. I don't think that belief is foundational to beating an illness like that. I think it helps, but I fundamentally is like not not this way. This is not how I end this game. And uh, I, I fundamentally in no way, shape or form believed that it was going to be fatal. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, fortunately, it turned out to not be. But and I appreciate your kind words, but I just, you know, not like this. <laughs> it doesn't happen like this. Uh, and um, uh, I think yeah. with, with good medical care and with, uh, you know, good healthy habits and all of that, uh, it seems to have gone better. So I, I appreciate that. I, uh, and I was actually quite curious, to be honest. I was quite curious about chemo and all of that. So it actually, uh, it worked all right. So I appreciate your kind words and I'm sorry that it made you, it made you sad, but I certainly appreciate the sentiment behind it. 
Oh, no, no need to apologize. You didn't make me feel anything. What I felt, I think, was just a natural reaction to someone who I've <laughs> come to know over the years, but never actually physically met. So I just think that's great. Um, what I did have a question on was family. And a letter I had received from my mother, after going to her and talking to her about, hey, I'm entering therapy, um, I need got some things in my life that I need to figure out. I need to understand more about myself. And it was, this was um, back in the summer of 2012. Since then, I've been doing it for a year. Um, listening to a lot of philosophy shows, obviously. Listening to uh, reading Alice Miller, who I absolutely love. Uh, her book, Drama of a Gifted Child, I think is probably one of the greatest books I've ever read, uh, ever. It can be not too redundant. And um, I, she recently sent me an email. She wanted to come see me, my wife, and my children. And and uh, try and fix, I guess, in her words, their relationship. And she, I said, okay, that you know, if you want to come up here, that's fine. You guys can get the hotel. Uh, that'll give us a great time, great time, and an opportunity to chat. Uh, the week that was supposed to happen, though, she uh, canceled and sent me an email, which is quite a long email, basically telling me that there's dark clouds over our family that we need to fix. And uh, her reasons of why she wasn't going to come. Uh, I so she in response to that email, I uh, spent well, over the course of a week wrote a five and a half page single space, uh, kind of like a current event timeline of what had gone in my life. I'm sorry to sorry to interrupt. Sorry to interrupt, but your mother wrote you that there were dark clouds over the family. But what does that? I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Okay, she because I had uh, when I had asked when I gone to tell her that I'm going to therapy, that I need to take a break from the family, that I just need not to be contacted because uh, some of the stuff involves my well, most of the stuff involves my childhood, uh, the things that I experienced uh, that are not good for me, and I asked for that time and say, hey, I wish you you know please don't contact me or the kids or or my wife as I move forward in trying to uh, make sense of my past in order to better. Uh, to help myself out in the future. And this was after okay. I started, I found, uh, listening to you and changed my parenting. Anyway, so moving forward, um, I sent her a response to that. And that was two and a half months ago when I sent my email and I had, uh, I know she got it. Um, I haven't heard a response from then, since then, from her at all. No text messages, no email message. And I made explicitly clear throughout my letter about what had gone on for me I said, I'm willing, I'm more than willing and eager, actually, to talk about any of these things in my life, your thoughts on them, and also to uh, any thoughts on my responses to some things, the emails she had sent. Mm-hmm. And it's been two months. My instincts, my instincts tell me that I'm not going to get a response. So I was kind of wondering your thoughts about that. It's, um, I mean, it's certainly a lot, lot to, to try and figure out because there's a lot of information that, you know, we could probably spend half a day talking about, right? So, um, is yeah, there anything is yeah. anything specific that you would find the most helpful to to try and discuss? Uh, what do you mean in regards with you and I, or with my parent, with my mother? With your mother, and that's your major topic at the moment, isn't it? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, there's really nothing um, that is of interest, quite honestly, of interest to me um, to share. Because of my instincts and what I'm feeling from her, or really not what I'm feeling. 
the lack of a response really to me seems to tell me everything I need to know about our relationship or really not a relationship at all. Mm. Now, were you looking for a response? I don't. This was more in prompt, um, I think, by my wife who was saying, uh, she was telling me, he's like, well, as a mother, I can understand the instinct that she's coming with or why she wants to, you know, come see you. But you said that you didn't, you needed a break from her. So she's kind of curious, uh, what kind of, she is curious because she asked about it, about what to do moving forward. But the email, it was really uh, passive aggressive. And yeah. whether it was conscious or unconscious, I, I don't know. But it was really, it really put me off and I really didn't want to respond at all. So. Well, it is, um, it's a real challenge. You know, when, when a relationship has reached the point where one person wants out, <clears throat> the other person is in a real bind. Right, so if, if you say, look, I'm, I'm taking therapy and I'm pursuing self-knowledge and I don't feel that I want to see you for a while, then one of two possibilities occurs, right? Like either your mother knew that there was something wrong with the relationship but didn't say anything or she didn't know that there was anything wrong with the relationship even though you were miserable, right? Now, if she yeah. knew that there was something wrong with the relationship, it's her job to fix it. Why? Because she's the mother. She's the parent. She defines yeah. the relationship. She defines the relationship. And it's not like, you know, with a husband and a wife or friends or, you know, whatever, boyfriend and girlfriend. It's, you know, it takes two to tango. There's, they both need to work on the relationship and so on. But with parents, it's always the parent's job to fix the relationship. It's always the parent's job. I don't care if the parent is 90 and the younger kid is 70. The parent defined the entire relationship and was like the potter molding the child's brain on their lap for the first 20 to 25 years. It's always going to be the parent's job to fix the relationship. If I have a conflict with my daughter, it is my job to fix it. It is not her job to fix it. Now, this doesn't mean that there's no standards for her in the relationship or anything like that, but it's my job. So do you think that your parents, sorry, do you think that your mother had any idea that you were this unhappy in the relationship? Oh, yeah. There's, I mean, there's really no way. I don't see how if she was, if she was, <laughs> and here's where it makes you think that uh, where I came to the conclusion, well, based on over the years since I've left home, that we really didn't have a relationship because if she didn't know, that means we were never in touch in the first place. But if she did know, then that also means that she didn't care enough to let me know or to put me aside or take me aside and say, hey, you know, I've been with these things have been going on. You've been talking about how, you know, work's been really hard for you. You've been having problems at home with your kids and your wife. And, you know, do you want someone to talk to? I never got any of that. Right. So, so yeah. So if you're unhappy and if you're unhappy and your mother doesn't do anything about it, then either she's so clueless that she doesn't even have any idea when her offspring is unhappy or she doesn't care that you're unhappy as long as the relationship serves her needs or she likes that you're unhappy because she's cruel. 
again, I'm, I'm not saying which is which. I'm just saying that there's not a lot of possibilities, but there's no way that a parent who lets a relationship with a child deteriorate to the point where the adult child is looking to get out, there's no way that a parent can claim innocence in any of that or blamelessness or anything like that. They've defined the whole relationship. No, definitely. Yes. And, and, and that's kind of where I'm coming from and my thoughts and where I'm towards this. This comes towards an end or however it does, right? Because I'm in with you. When you talk about the experiences you had with your own mother and saying, you know, the thoughts of her now or having to see her or if you had to talk to her, it kind of brings butterflies up to you. Uh, just because of you know your ha- your past, that's always going to affect you, and it's I mean it's the same thing with me. Um, that I'm not I'm not afraid to talk or communicate about it at all, really. But it's that old anxiety coming up, like oh this is you know this is what's happened before, uh, because I couldn't really voice my opinions growing up or when I was younger. Because if I did, they were just quite frankly squashed. So. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I can't, I, I certainly can't speak for you. I mean, you know, we just met. But I will tell you yeah. my experience of people who are manipulative. So when, when I was not happy with the people in my life, what would happen is in the past, not now, but in the past, I would get these incredibly convoluted and complicated and manipulative messages. It was, and it was always in a medium where they could get the last word, like a text message or an email or even a letter or something like that. They'd never drive over and sit me down and say, you know, tell me what the problem is. I'm here to listen. It would always be some complicated n-dimensional chess maneuvering to put themselves in a better light and to put me in a worse light with the hopes of crushing me down to a size small enough to fit in the little mental box of their skull-like prison again. That's, that's, I mean, that's all it was. It was all this maneuvering. Now, I really hate maneuvering in relationships. I hate maneuvering where people are just trying to somehow convince me that I am in the wrong and take, they take no responsibility, but nothing is ever clear, nothing's direct. It's all this creation of some sort of impression that's supposed to make you feel bad and sort of get you going back into the box or something like that. There's never any just sort of clear – and there's certainly no listening. You know, when I – if somebody has a problem with me and they send me a big text message or some sort of email or whatever, uh, I I know for a fact it's just not going to be any listening, right? Because there's no way – well, yeah, I mean, this is no way for me to respond. I'm the one with the problem, and the person with the problem is the one who's supposed to do the talking, right? You know, you, you go to yeah, a customer complaints hotline, you don't hear about the caller's bunions for half an hour, right? <laughs> I mean, they're supposed to shut the hell up and let you talk, right? So if the person who complains, the person who has the problem is the person who should be listened to. And so when I would say to people, I have a problem, they'd say, well, let me think about it. And then I get these long convoluted emails or text messages or letters. And none of it would be any kind of question about me. They never wanted to hear anything more about what I thought and felt 
all they were doing was trying to self-justify themselves and maneuver themselves into a position where they were superior and I was in the wrong. And it was very clear to me. It's like, well, I don't, I don't need to be here for you to do that. Right? Yeah. I mean, if you, you all want to justify yourselves with no reference to my opinions, you don't need me for that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely something I've come to realize as this transition really actually when I got into therapy in about the middle, the middle point of my year in therapy that's been going on. That I start to see is like my bullshit goggles were on totally, and I could just see manipulation or you know falseness going on around me all the time, and it was kind of shocking at first. And then I was able to turn it towards my family. Well, first turn it to myself and see where I had been false, and really look at that and look at you know my ability to do evil, um, and really look that head on. And that was probably the hardest part of this all, but then I was able to turn it outward to my family and then, you know, my, my mother and, and then even see the bad things I had done as an older sibling in my family. Um, so uh, you had, a, there was a podcast I saw, or uh, not, not to change topic real quick, but by asking why older siblings transfer or why older siblings take out or are rude or, you know, what's the word, abuse the, the younger siblings. And I, I thought quite a lot about that because uh, I don't know if you had ever gotten a response from anybody about that. But it's almost, um, I felt, I don't know. I don't know if there's even interest to you to hear. But Go on. Oh, uh, thanks. I felt um, powerless. And I was able to gain, uh, however really bad it was, able to gain some more power over and when I turned it on to my siblings and felt like I had some control where before I had none of my own life. I don't know. Does that make sense? Does that kind of make any sense to you? Um, it kind of does, but I've never really understood why there's the need to assert control. Because it's not, it's not control. Like, I mean, if you want to assert control... You can pick up a tennis racket and become a really good tennis player or pick up keyboards or guitar or whatever and exert control over that. Um, why, why the need to bully or dominate? I, I really, I, when I think about this, I can think of no other reason other than I felt better because someone else was suffering and not just me. Does that make any sense? Well, I don't know what that looks sorry, like. If, if you feel better, then the other person is suffering and not you, right? Yes, definitely. Oh, you're 100% correct. Yes. Right. So was that so really, that was the only that, way that you could solved. feel better? Sorry, could you repeat that one more time? And so um, uh, being harmful towards your younger siblings, was it younger siblings or older siblings? Oh, there, I was the oldest. I was I was first in line, so I had a younger sister, a younger brother. Okay, so and I'm not, you know, trying to be critical here. I'm I'm genuinely trying to understand it because it's something I don't really have any experience of. But how would it make you feel better? And so, what what did you do to to harm them? Uh, it allowed me. Well, maybe dissociate would be able to maybe a better word to be able to describe it, where I would distance myself from my own feelings. Right, and there, 
uh, I don't know, this is looking back on it as, as I remember. Um, and so say I would tease my sister. I would tease my sister incessantly when we were young. Um, things like I called her, uh, I called her flag. Like I just said, hey, flag. And uh, <laughs> that really upset her. And I understand why. And then she would respond in turn, like, um, say she used to call me toilet teeth. And okay, but hang on, let's just go back. So you would call her flag. I don't really quite understand yeah, yeah. that, but let's say that it was something that bothered her. Why would that make you yeah. feel better? That part, I, I, I don't know. I thought and thought and thought about that. Well, it no, was, um, no, you don't. Sorry, year therapy, Alice Miller. This show, the I don't know doesn't cut it, right? No, no. Um, it was. Like you said that you examined your capacity to do harm, which I appreciate. This is a great, great thing to do. But if yeah, you yeah. say then when I ask you why did you do harm or what was your motivation for doing harm and you say I don't know, then you haven't really examined it, right? Oh, no. Um, I felt I – really, I really did feel like I had some power or sway or was able to um, – minimize my own feelings of um, anxiety and pain and loneliness and take that away from myself by putting on to someone else. That's horrible as that is. I mean, that's really um, my feelings. That's, that's, a very, that's a very abstract description, and I appreciate that as sort of an intellectual understanding. But what was the feeling, right? So what would drive you to tease your sister? Right. In other words, would you go and – okay, okay. So you knew that it bothered her. So that became something that – did you seek it out or was it just when she was in the room or did you go and try and pursue her to, to tease her? Uh, no. Okay. Speaking of this now, um, do you – Whenever – I don't know how to explain this. Hold on. Let me formulate thoughts in my head. I would, I would tease no, her no, you see, and you're, then you're, later in the hang day – Hang on a sec. Hang on. No, hang please, on. So please, you, you're, no, you're not yes. – this is like the, the fourth time you're not responding to my question, <laughs> right? Because I'm asking you these fairly okay, simple questions sorry. and you're going on these big intellectual explanations, right? So I asked you, did okay. you seek her out or did it just happen when she came in the room? Sometimes I sought her out. Other times it just happened when she was around or – yeah. Sometimes I specifically did seek it out, I guess. So sometimes you did it um, – you would seek her out? Yes, definitely. Okay, and you would seek her out with and the intention – And I apologize for – I wasn't trying to deflect the question. Okay, and you would seek her out with the intention of, of bothering her, of teasing her, of making her unhappy? Yes, yes. And why? What what was the feeling before and during and after? So why would you seek someone? Because you were all victims, right? If you had this kind of cold mom or this unconnected mom, then you could have been partners in victimization, and you could have given each other comfort, right? Yeah. This is I mean, this is part of what I don't understand about sibling uh, about sibling teasing and abuse and all that. Is that why not? 
you know, I think of, you know, to take a ridiculously extreme example, right? I think of, you know, people in Nazi concentration camps, you know, they could at least band together and give each other some comfort, but that they, but that the siblings turn on each other rather than support each other in times of trial. I'm just trying to, trying to figure that out. And I appreciate your patience with that. So what's the feeling, what's the feeling that drives you in to harm your sister's peace of mind? It would be, I appreciate you going through this definitely. Thank you. Um, I felt anxiety. So you would feel anxiety, um, and then you would go and try and find your sister to felt, to, to tease her. To to is it is, is that a way of managing like the anxiety? I felt, I, yeah, I felt like uh, I don't know another word better than anxiety, but like or unrest, and felt like um, and this is usually right around before uh, my stepfather got home. And, um, cause I knew some, I knew he was coming home. So I was really anxious. And if my, even my sister was in a room playing, I'd go find her and see what he's doing. And I'd start to play with her and then do something because I, I don't know, I was just feeling really anxious. So I just want to relieve that anxiety. I mean, it's so horrible. You'd be feeling it's, anxious. it's absolutely horrible that it happened. But. So you'd be feeling anxiety because your stepdad would be coming home. And would you go with the intention of sort of, quote, playing nicely with your sister, and then you would yeah, that, turn mean? Or? Yeah, sometimes sometimes that's exactly what it would be like. Uh, we'd be, or we'd be playing like a board game like Candyland, like <laughs> back in like the 1990s, early 1990s, right? We'd be playing Candyland or something, and then all of a sudden I would take two or three cards and move that amount of spaces. And it would get a reaction out of her, obviously, because that's cheating. Right. And so what was the goal? Did you experience that as trying to be funny? Some, uh, uh, very, very rarely. So it was done with the specific purpose of, of making her upset, right? Y- yes, yes, definitely. And what would the, how would that serve you? I don't know the way to put it other than I felt good. I don't know if that's uh, I felt better. Like my anxiety, seeing someone else uh, with anxiety, I didn't feel alone. Does that make sense? So you would transfer your anxiety to her by cheating or teasing or bothering her, right? Yes, yes, yes. Hmm. And that's horrible. I mean, I, looking at it... No, I no, mean, I, I mean, I, 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 I mean I'm not trying to sort of point any sort of significant moral finger-wagging at you. And, yeah, of course, it's horrible. I understand that. But I still don't really understand it. I mean, because, you know, because then your I've sister... You talk about your it. sister... Hang on. But, but your sister then gets gets your stepdad coming home, which was making her anxious, plus she's got this brother who's making her feel bad too, right? So she gets it double, right? Yeah, definitely, yeah. 
but I wasn't aware of any of this at the time, other than I felt less anxious when this was going on. That doesn't make it right. Well, it make hang it on, though. I that mean, was my experience. I felt. But you were aware that it made your sister unhappy, right? Yes, yes, I was. And you were aware that while you may have felt better, she would feel a lot worse. Like, did she end up crying sometimes, or how did it end up? Oh, no, she was, she cried uh, regularly. And was it you who made her cry? Uh, Not every time, no, but I was a catalyst uh, more. Out of all the siblings, yes, uh, me, I was on top of both of them when when my younger brother got older. Right, so you were definitely aware that it made her very unhappy, right? Yes, I was. And you're still not sure. I mean, you felt some anxiety, and then you felt relief from that anxiety when you made her cry. Yes. And did you ever, at the time, think to yourself that it's something you should stop doing? Yes, definitely. I did, I did think that, and uh, I would even go to my sister and apologize afterwards or give her like one of my G.I. Joes to play with or say, hey, can I come in here and we can uh, play together? I mean, this wasn't, this wasn't all the time that we fought, or excuse me, that I, that I was rude to her. There was times of kindness, but that doesn't really excuse um, the times of negativity that I brought or the pain that I brought to her and then to my little brother. Well, and we don't know for sure whether the kindness that you showed her was a way of keeping her in the orbit of putting her down, right? Like, no, no, it's, there's no way to know. Yeah, I have no idea. That. It's sort of well known that when a husband beats up his wife, the first thing he does is go out and buy her flowers and gifts and tell her how much he loves her, how sorry he is, he cries, he, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? And he does that because he wants yeah. to keep her in a place where he can continue to harm her, right? Because if you were relentlessly cruel and there was never any kindness, then she would just avoid you, right? You had to, you know, it's possible that you were kind to her in order to keep her around to harm her more, if that makes sense. Yeah, the enable kind of enable my future behavior, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Otherwise, she'd come into the room, she'd just leave, right? She, she just would, wouldn't, she'd go to friends' houses, she'd just stay away from you no matter what, right? Yes, 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 she would. So maybe I didn't help explain it anymore when we were talking about earlier. No, I don't. Uh, don't think I have any. But I think I think it's something to think about. I mean, I know I've had some theories about it. And, oh no! Sure. But I, I try not to put some theories out in, when I get a chance to talk to someone directly. Uh, but I don't think that this is particularly well understood for you. But I think it's an important thing to understand, which is what was the motivator for this kind of obviously destructive behavior that was not exactly ennobling or elevating to you, right? Oh, yes, definitely not. All right. Is there anything else that you wanted to uh, ask me about? And I appreciate you talking about that. I, I mean, I know it's a, it's a hell of a tough subject. Uh, it's, it's not. I mean, it happens, and uh, me denying it happened would only hurt me in the long run, and it's horrible, and you know, I try to talk to I talk uh, my sister and my brother, and about this very topic, and engage them and say, "Look, uh, I was very horrible. Uh, I treated you extremely poorly growing up. 
Um, and I'm going to therapy now and I'm trying to work on that, but I would, you know, I would maybe see if, if you, if you want to go into therapy for yourselves, maybe try and uh, at some point, maybe down the road, we can all kind of talk about our collective experience and moving forward. Cause I don't have a, we don't have a close relationship, either my mother or my sibling really at all. You mean you with your, uh, you with your siblings? Well, no, can you repeat that please? I think I'm a surgeon. Oh, so you and your siblings don't have a close relationship, right? Yeah, uh, no, not not really at all. Well, of course, right? I mean, that's that's yeah, the yeah. price, I right? I mean, there's why would we? Yeah. Right. right. Okay. Well, and, um, know, I said. Uh, go ahead. Anyway, that's it. <clears throat> no, I was just saying, like, I I understand the reasoning. I understand at least intellectually the reasoning for that. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something worth exploring. But uh, if you don't have any uh, any more questions, I think uh, I, I can move on to the next caller, if that's all right with you. Oh, that's perfectly fine. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Thank you so much. All right, Ava, you're up next. Go ahead, Ava. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, what's on your mind? Hi. Um, hi. Uh, is it all right if I can um, read the question that I typed out? I'm just not that great at... Uh, verbal speaking verbally you bet all right so my first question originally was going to do with something that i thought was pretty short-sighted so this is going to be um, a bit more broader i have problems with anxiety and procrastination um while i feel that i'm really great at collecting information and get really hyped on um taking my goals into action um, whenever um, there's chances where I have the opportunity to achieve my goals, like whether I can enter into competitions or apply for a university or even um, drawing, um, that's which is actually my passion, I feel a really great dread and avoidance um, whenever there is something to do with progress. I miss a lot of work and the pressure keeps piling up so much so that I feel crippled and I feel like personally, sometimes pursuing my dreams is impossible. And while I know that it is ironic that I should be probably should be maybe take more actions to prying for more information, I am improving, but I still can't find or I can't still understand why I still have this cycle, even though I'm still getting, I'm slowly getting better. And I was just wondering if you can help me get some insight about it. And that's it. Well, sure. Um, what do you think I'm going to ask first? Um, my childhood. I think it actually has a big part of it because I was raised as a bubble wrapped child. And I had uh, a lot of... I'm sorry, as a So I know... Um, I was raised as a bubble wrapped kid. So it's like my parents took... Well, my father really took care of me for everything so um i barely had to do anything um when i was um when i was a kid or even my teenage years so i think that takes a lot a big part of it and also my confidence level it's uh, i feel pretty unconfident and uh, even right now i feel kind of scared of talking and um yeah Right, and there was a phrase that you used. It sounded like a bubble rat kid or a bubble rat. Is it bubble rat kid? 
it, it, that is um it's i it's about um overprotective parents that's what it means in essence oh okay okay listen you not your name's not isabella you're not my daughter calling from the future are you no um my father um i know particularly he loves me a lot um even though i don't reciprocate it as well as i could but um when i when i was a child and sometimes uh, even as a kid uh, i mean as a teenager um he does things um that a five-year-old should know what to do already or should be taught and it's because um i think personally it's because uh part of it like my father overprotects me or sometimes he does things for me that I should know how to do is because I think that also plays in part with my mother, who was never really in part of my life, and my father sometimes feels that bad about it, and he doesn't know what to do, so I, yeah. Right, right. And... Is it your father, is he managing his own anxiety when he does things for you? Is that sort of the idea? Like he feels bad if you can't do something and therefore he tries to do that thing for you? Um, I feel like he has um, little faith in me, I guess, just because I don't, um, I barely do anything. Um, I omit it. Um, I barely do um, most things he wants me to do because I feel that there's little effort and I, either way, he'll do it eventually um i think also in part it's um my mo mother and father really have a bad relationship and argue every night um but i think part of it is just that he really wants to build a relationship with m me and really wants i think partially um he really wants to build a good relationship with me and it's just instead of my um instead of building a relationship with um, his, my mother, because it's completely gone right now, so. I'm sorry, I, you said that your, I thought your mother was gone. Oh, no, it's, like, my, my relationship with my, um, the relationship between my um, mother and father, it's completely broken, and I don't, they should have been divorced a while ago, but they've been still together and married because of me, I guess. But they argue every night, and um, I, I can't go any further than that. But um, their their relationship is pretty broken down. That they don't really even like each other that much. But they love me and my father particularly. Um, I think um, this has to do something about it. But it's my father does a lot of things for me so that um, he can gain my approval. Or like it kind of worked before, like. Um, how should I say this? Uh, it, he appeals to what I believe in, I guess, or, or does things for me so he can just uh, make it easier for um, me to like him, I guess, if that makes sense. Right. And do you have a, a specific question that I can help you with? Um, it's just dealing with my anxiety and procrastination. Um, I feel, I feel kind of... Um, with my family situation, I I really want to take account of my actions and really want to. And I am starting um, things on my own and uh, really taking good interest in things. But I feel like um, my dreams, um, there's my dreams are really really um, have a really are they're really really tall. 
and it's just it's I feel like pursuing them are is impossible and I procrastinate and etc and yeah I just I think I need um some guide um guidance on or insight just to figure out how to well take the first step forward towards what um towards um, achieving my dreams which I'll be specific um I really want to be an animator. Uh, I really would love to um, innovate um, the animation industry in the Western world. And I also would love to one day be really self-sufficient. Like, uh, I'm a bubble wrap kid, as I said, or like, I really have been overprotected that I barely knew how to do things on my own. And I really would love to um, start things, actually. Just live on my own and actually have just, yeah. Okay, so do you want some sort of practical advice on how to start that kind of stuff? Yes, that definitely would be helpful. Okay, okay, good. Well, I hope that will help. Well, I don't know a huge amount about the uh, animation industry other than, as far as the documentary goes, animators can be somewhat unreliable. But mm. there's no substitute for just doing stuff, right? So if you want to, I guess you have a pretty big goal of revolutionizing the animation industry in the West then you need to just start animating, right? So you need to find people who have projects. So my suggestion would be yeah, you can find a channel on YouTube that, you know, you like their videos, but maybe you think their videos could be enhanced with some animation. And you say, listen, I will... Yeah. Go ahead. Um, actually, I've been thinking about... Um, um, I'm still in high school, like my last year, and I'm still thinking... I've been applying to all the top animation schools in North America already. And also I was thinking soon enough that I'll actually contact um, animators themselves if they have like Twitter or Facebook just to see on the possibility of my dreams. If that makes sense. Um, but I'm sorry, I don't, I, I don't, like, I mean, okay, hang on a sec. So you want to go to school, right? And so oh, I, yeah, I don't know, I maybe, you need, maybe you need that for animation, I don't know. But, but I'm not sure what you mean when you say contact animators on Twitter. Oh, um, you know how like professionals in the media have Twitters or Facebooks or Blogspots where people yeah, are no, I understand that. contact But wh right? why would you talk to yeah. them? Why, why would you want to contact them? Oh, it's to um, get an idea about the industry itself and what's the possibility of actually getting my ideas out there and making the films I want or the television shows I want. Yeah, that won't help. If that makes sense. Yeah, I'm sorry. That okay. that won't help. I mean, so it'd be All like right. somebody I don't know twitters me and says, you know, I'd like to have an in-depth conversation about my possibilities for starting a philosophical podcast. Sorry, okay. I yeah. I don't have time. I have my, my own philosophical podcast to run. And uh, so it's, sense. you know, yeah, it, it may be, you know, it might happen. But it seems quite uh, quite unlikely that people will spend the time uh, to to do that. So mm -hmm. if you you know, my suggestion would be find a YouTube channel that you like where they've got short videos that could benefit from animation, and say, oh, look, you know, I would like to animate you an introduction, right? So somebody did um, a nice animation for the introduction to True News and stuff that we still use for our shows here at Free Domain Radio, and uh, you can say, listen, I just want to put a little little website or a little logo or a little Twitter address or something in the bottom corner. And then you, you know, if it's somebody who's got some pretty good views, then this is a way that you get free advertising and you get a chance to get your work seen by 
lots of people. You know, like if you want to be into video yeah. game design, then what you do is you you mod a bunch of video games and you design levels and then you can get a job. So usually the more attractive the job, the more work you have to do for free. Like if you want to be a waiter, yeah. nobody says you have to be a waiter for free for a couple of years. But if you want to be an actor, most people will say, we'll start doing community theater and stuff like that, right? Yeah. And so if you can find people who have channels, offer to give them an intro or an outro or offer to animate something for them. And then you have a project. You probably won't get paid, but you'll get views and, and then people can start to see the work that you do and you will also go through the production process. And I think that's a good way of figuring out. You know, the important thing to do before you pursue a dream is figure out how much you like it. And unfortunately, I've been having philosophical mm -hmm. conversations for approximately 3,000 years. So... For me, I knew that I was going to like doing it, but you may like the idea of animation. You might even like certain aspects, but taking a project from beginning to end with feedback and criticism and complaints and problems and all that is something to really, uh, I think, really experience. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does, definitely. Um, is it right if we can talk about the second, um, how should I say this, uh, the second um, part of what I was talking about, like, the hold on. Um, I was wondering about. I still feel um, I still feel very nervous and not that confident about um, even living outside the house or um, obtaining um, learning how to make my own money, especially um, during these times where the the economy is going to collapse again, right? And it's just, I still feel kind of, I don't know how to, um, I feel pretty scared personally, just on how to really start becoming financially sufficient, even though, and yeah, I was just wondering what was the first, what are the first steps you think, or what are the first ideas that make you feel confident enough to go forth, I guess? Well, I mean, if you're going to school, like if, let's say, you go to university, you can do a sort of a transition interval, right? Mm -hmm, so you yeah. could go into residence, right, where, you know, you have a place to sleep and you have some meals, but you're kind of on your own, you budget and so on. So it's kind of like a halfway house for people who don't have a lot of experience running their own lives. But, I mean, you're still in high school. You've got, if you're going to go to college, that's another couple of years. So I wouldn't worry too much. First of all, I mean, I wouldn't worry too much about the economic collapse thing. I mean, there is going to be a transition right. for sure. But the best way to deal with that is to try and get as many marketable skills as possible. And you can do that through pursuing animation, right? Negotiation skills, project completion yeah. skills, negotiation skills, all that kind of stuff is going to be valuable. And there's not really much of a recession mm -hmm. for college graduates. I mean, this is important to understand. Okay. It's the poorer classes and tragically the minority classes who are bearing the brunt uh, the blue collar classes who are bearing the brunt of the recession unemployment among college grads is like four or five percent which is mostly just people changing jobs and stuff like that so i wouldn't imagine that you have to go from like zero to a hundred in a day but um no, no. Uh, so yeah you you uh, it may be useful for you to go to college outside the home if you know if you get a scholarship or if your parents can afford it and that way you get a, a used to living a little bit more independently but without having the whole thing on your shoulders right away that would be my suggestion mm -hmm. 
And I think there's one more question that it's kind of actually off topic on this, but I think it's pretty important in my life. Is it okay to ask it? If there's yeah, anything you like. Just quickly. Um, okay. So uh, my friend, um, my dear friend, um, we are complete opposites, I guess. Um, he's very, very um, faithful and um, faith-based and he's very spiritual while I'm more rational and pragmatic. Um, and this um, recently, the death of Paul Walker actually really, really affected him. And mm. when I was just wondering, well, I can't go much into that because I, I, I don't want to um, we'll make his life uh, public, but um, uh, I'll say that um, he had been very, very, very upset more than he should be than a normal person because he never met Paul Walker before in his life. And I was just wondering uh, how to de um, how to talk with someone who experiences that or how to um, help them go through it because it's pretty... Um, it's it's kind of insane to even think about it and understand sometimes because it's just it's it's for me it's bizarre because uh, I'm the opposite of him right and I don't have as many experiences as he has. Right. Why do you think he is so upset about Paul Walker's death? Um, I think he's missing something in his heart. Um, like he, um, I think he really wants to love, um, achieve an. Um, unconditional love from a man and that is Paul Walker uh, yeah I don't think I, he, I don't think he'd get unconditional love from Paul Walker he's the wrong gender and several years too old but um, celebrities oh no he's gay are so not yeah but... oh he's gay oh okay okay all right so not yeah. right orientation wrong gender although Paul Walker wasn't gay so now how is your friend's relationship with his father um, his oh he doesn't have um any biological well his he was he has a an adopted mother but his biological parents were actually um he doesn't know where they are they might be dead or um so poverty stricken because he was adopted actually from from an orphanage in Cambodia. Wow, that's rough. Yeah, you know I mean He's there's lucky. this. Yeah, he is lucky, but um, that doesn't mean he doesn't have leftover challenges to deal no, I mean, with. But... Um, he's, I'm sorry, um, I mean, he's very fortunate because um, he's adopted to a very wealthy family, and his mother really does love him, I think, and, it, and so much that um, he's actually pretty spoiled, and I think that also plays a big part in it. Hey, I thought you said you were complete opposites. Uh, um Kind of, almost. Um, I think, like, uh, we have... Well, you're uh, both spoils, right? I Isn't really... that what you were telling me? Oh, true, yes. Um, but it... I think we come from very similar origins, and that's why we connect so much greatly, because I can I experience what he experiences sometimes, and we can talk to you honestly instead of talking about trivial stuff. Um, but externally, like, how we... Our personalities, and even probably um, personality-wise, yeah. Um, he's... We were both very differently. Um, if he was on this show right now, he would probably be a much, much, much better talker than I am right now because I'm so stumbling, but I'm stumbling. No, listen, yeah. first of all, you're doing fantastically. Don't uh, don't fall into a stereotype. You know, this is this is my advice to young people in general. 
Don't fall into a stereotype mm-hmm. and be very careful how you describe yourself. Right? Mm-hmm. Be very I- careful how you describe yourself because you say that you uh, are nervous and stumbling and, and so on, but you're doing fantastically for someone twice your age, right? You're in high school. You are a bubble rap kid, as you say, right? Um, yeah. If you hadn't told guess, me yeah. that you were nervous and stumbling, I wouldn't even think it. Does that make sense? Really? Really? Um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, um, no, yeah, don't, like now don't apologize. Stuff. I'm just... I'm just pointing out, like, so some families, they get these kind of cliches, you know, oh, you know, he's the forgetful one and she's the clumsy one. And I, be very careful with, you're, you're too young to start describing yourself to other people. You know, you're doing a great job oh, yeah. in a conversation. Like, I think if I was your age, talking to someone like, what, 30, you know, 30 years older than I, uh, in a public forum to be recorded for all time, forever, for any, I mean, I'd be like, that's, you're doing fantastically. I mean, I, I wouldn't have imagined that you were, you know, stumbling and whatever it is. So uh, don't, uh, you know, let, let people discover you for themselves. And, you you know, what they discover may be quite different from what you think. So uh, I think you're doing fantastically and, you know, good for you. But I think you asked um, a very yeah, important sorry. question, Eva, which is around celebrities. So there's this yes. belief that celebrity culture is somehow bad or shallow or wrong or anything like that. But I, I, don't, I don't really believe that to be the case. I mean, celebrities are not real people to us. They're just pictures and this and that and the other. But I think that they're very important to us uh, in terms of um, signposts or guideposts or, or areas for self-knowledge, right? So when I was young, Sting was the guy, right? The, the, he was a singer for the police and he was just you know, beautiful and great voice, great songwriter, yeah. great performer. He was the guy. I, when I was a teenager, I used to imagine like, oh, yes, Sting and I would be living in an old Victorian house, playing music and talking philosophy together. And, you know, he was like, a, I guess, a father figure, which would probably be insulting to him because he's not a whole lot older, <laughs> older than me. But um, you, you have these kinds of father figures. Um, for me, Freddie Mercury was one of these, not a father figure per se, but that magnificent grabbing of a microphone and bellowing glorious music to the world at large was something that deep down I yearned for, I wanted. And, you know, to some degree, I've been able to achieve. Now, when he first began singing, I guess he was 12 when he formed his first band in a boarding school in Zanzibar. And uh, I guess he rose to sort of stardom 15 years later. Um, and even after he started, they started playing gigs, it took them basically about 10 years to get to uh, the top of their game. And they sort of built up a following along the way. And that was sort of my experience as well. And then they were ripped off by someone. I mean, even after writing some hit albums, Freddie Mercury was still living in a little apartment with mold on the walls and just a, you know, piece of crap. And I really respected the, the, the degree of gusto and passion which he brought to his public persona, to, to putting on a show. You know, the music is the music and the show is the show. And I've always really tried. I mean, sometimes before I'll say, you know, Freddie, help me with this speech. <laughs> help me make, give me some spirit. Help me make, it's a way of engaging alter egos. It's a way of, of tapping into unconscious energy. So I think that there's nothing wrong with thinking about celebrities. Uh, and and using them as models for particular things that you aspire to. I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. I think that's great. Now, 
there's also an aspect of celebrity life which is important for us as well, which is they're very often enormously miserable human beings. And that is another signpost for us. I mean, when I was a kid as well, I don't know how I was a teenager, I think, when Thriller came out. And I didn't know about Michael Jackson's history with the Jackson 5 or anything like that. And he was the guy. You know, I, um, I never saw him live. Um, when he first came to Toronto, I actually lined up all night, bought a bunch of tickets and sold them again because I was an entrepreneurial little blondie. But he was like a living god. I mean, the glove, the, you know, anything to do with Michael Jackson was just, people went insane over it. And, I mean, in his later years, you know, anorexic, his, his toes and feet were all mashed up from dancing. He was... Uh, bulimic. Uh, he, he required a catheter over his penis to sleep because he couldn't maintain any regularity. Uh, he hadn't slept in a week. And I mean, he just a completely miserable, miserable existence that he ended up just wasting away in this god-awful nightmare of a life. Uh, Michael Hutchins, singer from In Excess, uh, ended up, uh, well, I won't, you know, you're a, a young mind. We won't get into the details of how he ended, but you know, pretty miserable on antidepressants. You know, Heath Ledger, Jim Belushi, uh, of course, Philip Seymour Hoffman, all this nasty, miserable existences in in many ways. And it is that reminder, you know, that we always yearn for something outside of ourselves to make us happy. You know, like if if I get enough money, if I get, if I'm pretty enough or handsome enough, if I get a six-pack, if I get this role, if I close this deal, if I buy this car, if I date this woman or this man or whatever, if I make this movie or if I change Western animation for the better, then then what? Yeah. Well, many people have tried that route and it doesn't lead them to much good stuff. There is no external solution to the problem of insecurity. And celebrities yeah. constantly remind us of that, you know, if uh, if being rich, famous, and beautiful and talented were enough, Marilyn Monroe would might even still be alive today, right? But uh, she OD'd on barbiturates after being passed around from man to man. And um, celebrities can be helpful from that standpoint. So I wouldn't, you know, I you know people are, oh celebrity culture and so on. I said I am interested. You know, I don't buy the magazines, but if they're around at the airport, whatever, I'll, I'll read them. I'm curious. These people are signposts or guides either to ourselves, to what we could achieve, or to what we should avoid. Uh, they are morality tales, I guess you could say. So, you know, the fact that he's really interested in Paul Walker and is broken up by his death is important. You know, if he's, look, if he's oh, a, yeah, he's, sorry, let me just say one last thing and then I'll let you, I'll, I'll shut up. But sure. it may be like Paul Walker is like a gay man's wet dream, right? I mean, he's gorgeous, yeah, probably, yeah. you know, talented, rich mm -hmm. and all that. So, but, but it wasn't enough for him. He still had to do stupid, risky shit after being a workaholic and missing out on his daughter's childhood. Right. Mm -hmm. And. So, well, he tried to be in his daughter's life well, but before he died. Well, let, let me tell you, as a, as a dad, that's not something you really try. You know, when I was at theater school, yeah. when I was at theater school, some guy was, was trying to cry 
And, it, you know, it looks, you know, when you're trying to cry on stage, it looks terrible, right? And so the, the acting teacher said, okay, stand up. He's sitting in a chair. She said, stand up. And she said, okay, try to sit in that chair. And he looked at her and was like, what? And she said, try to sit in that chair. And the question doesn't really make any sense, right? What do you mean try Not to sit really in the no chair? Thing. No, I mean, you, you just sit in the chair, right? And he said, well, I don't know what it means by try to sit in the chair. You either sit in the chair or you don't. And she said, right, don't try to cry. Either cry or don't, but be authentic to what you're experiencing in the moment. You do not need to try to be in your daughter's life. You either do or you don't. You are or you aren't in your daughter's life. But there's not a whole lot of trying okay. about that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So with your gay friend, it could be that Paul Walker had everything that a gay man could dream of. You know, beauty and fame and money and so on. There still wasn't enough for him to be happy. Mm -hmm. and um, that might be a friend, good lesson he, for him. Um, for my friend, he absolutely loves Paul and after stuff, actually, which is interesting. Well, he said he, um, uh, I guess, obsessed about him a bit before, but it, because, until he died, he actually became really, really interested in his life, and um, he actually sees him as his guardian angel, if that makes sense. Um, now that he's dead, um, but it's the one thing about um, me was sometimes that I get frustrated when talking to him sometimes just that I don't understand personally how he can be so he's um, he's 100% obsessed and in love with Paul um, after, his, after his death and he doesn't see any flaws or he might but he doesn't really consider them he doesn't see the flaws that you just perhaps mentioned or he just sees him as a great being and uh a wonderful person that obviously didn't deserve to die obviously but he gets so wound up in it so much so that i still don't understand sometimes oh no, he's begging you he's begging so no look eva he's begging He's begging you to help yeah. him out of his mysticism. This is, uh, really? Uh, sorry. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, okay. I, this is what um, I this is what I would say to a friend of mine who was a mystic and obsessed with Paul Walker. Or as you said, spiritual, right? He's faith based, right? Um, actually, went to uh, a past life regression therapy session just yesterday, and he wanted to find out answers if. Paul was going to, uh, was in his life before, which is interesting. He was interesting trying to get answers as to what? what, what? Oh, if Paul was in his life before, because there must be, he believes that there must be a reason why he loves Paul so much, right? Because he's obsessed over him so much so that um, he loves him more than anyone he has met in his real life. Okay, Eva, I got to tell you right, something. That's what he says. I got to yeah. tell you something. This guy is pretty nuts. Mm -hmm. Your friend. Oh, uh, uh, he's a one, uh, well, yeah, a lot of people some say, well, some people say that to me, but, well, the one, people I feel like counselors that like, I talk to about it, but, uh, I still stick up to him because he's my friend and I, I really do love him as a friend and it's just, he's, 
I can't abandon him because he, he's going through a lot. And I'm not sure if I'm being manipulated or if he's actually telling the truth of what he believes. But I really... Well, it doesn't matter. Have, I'm really gullible. No, it doesn't matter whether he's telling the truth or not. Like either he does believe that Paul Walker might have been entwined with him in a past life, which is crazy. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. I try to reason out with him, but he's very stubborn to not even go to a council and talk about it. He's very... No, I got it. But look, obviously, he's he's not obsessed with Paul Walker because Paul Walker was a great spiritual mentor and a very wise philosopher and a deep, ancient and learned soul who led the world to a better place, right? You know, there's nothing shallower than spirituality. There's nothing shallower than mysticism. It's a great cover-up for the most material nonsense of all time. You know, like, you, you should be able to preach the Word of God without hair gel and a Bentley, you know? And without a mega church and a singing choir, I mean, spirituality is the shallowest thing around. There's nothing deeper than reason and philosophy and nothing shallower than faith and mysticism, superstition, religiosity, and spirituality. Those things are shallow as hell. He is into Paul Walker because Paul Walker was gorgeous. And that's it. There's no fundamental moral qualities. I mean, maybe he was a nice guy to a lot of people. He seems to have done some charity work. Yay, that's great. But come on, you and I both know, and this guy knows deep down, that it's just because he was really, really purdy, right? Well, part, yeah, mostly, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, come on. Now, that's not spiritual, right? So you can say, well, what are the spiritual qualities? Forget, like, let's say that Paul Walker looked like uh, Conrad Black with leprosy, or I don't know. Who's a really ugly guy? I don't know. But let's say Paul Walker looked really gross. Or let's say he was an 80-year-old Finnish man. Would he still be obsessed with him? Of course not. You know, he was smooth-skinned, tousled-haired, blue-eyed, gorgeous. I mean, it's just the, the power of looks. It's nothing, it's not, there's nothing spiritual about it. Uh, he is yearning for a fantasy, and he is damaging his brain by indulging in these fantasies. Let me tell you something. You know, indulging in this kind of mysticism when you're young, it, it it's like smoking ecstasy. Yeah. I don't know. Do you smoke? Do you smoke ecstasy, Mike? Not you, but does one smoke ecstasy? Because some drug guy is going to ask me that. Or tell me what it is. You're asking me. <laughs> you seem pretty happy. <laughs> I think you take a pill. It's a pill, right? I believe so. Yeah. Or something on a piece of paper. Is James in the chat room? <laughs> James, do you know? Ernest Bornine. Yeah, like like Eva's going to know who Ernest Bornine is. Thank you. You don't smoke it. No, I don't think you take it that way. Oh, you just put the pill on your tongue. It's a pill. Yeah, okay. So it's like, you know, taking ecstasy. Yeah, you're up all night. You're thirsty. You're horny. You're dancing. But, you know, you're killing brain cells. Uh, mysticism when you're young looks like kind of an indulgence, kind of uh, something that's uh, interesting or something like that. But let me tell you, uh, Eva, you've got to understand this. This is really harming his brain, and it has the potential to harm your brain as, as well. There's nothing more contagious than crazy. Well, 
it, it got me really, really worried every day um, for the past few weeks, actually. Um, yeah, and I've been actually trying to talk to his mother about it, but she said, um, but the thing, that's the problem, is just he does not want to see another viewpoint or, like, go to a counselor or talk to someone else about it um, because he believes what he believes and no one can change him, apparently. And I just, so he's I beyond. Just so look, up. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, when I was younger, I thought that people were who they were, and then they had these beliefs. Mm-hmm. You know, so I sort of thought it was like there's a house and there's vines or ivy growing on the outside, you know, and there's a couple of leaves in the eaves troughs and some snow on the roof. So I thought there's this house, that's the person, and then there's these beliefs that are kind of floating around the person and have some little effect on who they are, but, you know, they're not foundational to who they are. Oh, I can tell you I was wrong. I was oh so wrong. People are their beliefs. And when you're young, that's not quite as evident as when you get older. But people who are mystics, it seemed like just kind of an affectation or whatever, right? But when you get older, you realize they're not kidding. They're not kidding. They genuinely believe this stuff. Well, no, they they genuinely believe this stuff. You know, like my mom used to have these conversations with me where she would drone on and on about how she was going to knit psychic helmets to protect people from bad influences around the world and and, and that she knew of and so on. And she she watched the OJ trial, jumping up and down, completely convinced and and writing letters. So she planned to write letters to the defense team, completely convinced that she'd solved the case and anyway uh, but and i would like well this you know there's my mom and then she has some crazy beliefs it's like no no my mom is crazy beliefs there's no there's nothing in there anymore that's not who she who who she is in terms of her beliefs like her beliefs the beliefs are the person and so if he's got okay. crazy beliefs he's pretty crazy um the what do you think i should do then when talking to him because I am still his friend and I always uh, will be for a while, uh, a long time. Well, I would tell you, I would tell I, you that you, no, hang on, sorry to interrupt, but I'd tell you the speech that I would give him and then you can say, who the hell am I to listen to some bald old fart, <laughs> right? But I'll tell you the speech that I would give him even hopefully this would be helpful. I'd say, look, I'm worried about you. I'm really worried about you. The Paul Walker thing, many times. yeah, the Paul Walker is not healthy. Paul Walker thing is not healthy. It's not any deep spiritual qualities yeah. that you admire in the guy. It's because he was pretty and he was powerful and he was rich. And these are maybe things that you want, but you're going through about it in such a confused manner that this is going to absolutely harm your life. I mean, how the hell are you going to get a job if you bring up your obsession with Paul Walker and past lives in the job interview? Oh, or is it just like... He's very good at, at hiding, hiding his personal feelings, and he's also really good at um, – he's very professional when making jobs. Like, he has right now three part-time jobs, and he's in the first year of university. So, yeah, he's pretty – Oh, so it's a, is it just you he dumps – hang on. So it's just you he dumps his crazy on? He saves his sane for everyone else? Uh, mostly, yeah, and his mother. But um, he has, like, right now has – he has a tattoo that about Paul Walker, so it's kind of visibly there. Oh it's want to talk about, but he he's got a really tattoo. Of, sorry, it. he's got a tattoo of Paul Walker. Uh, yes, um, it was the best option I think 
oh, I can't, I don't know if I really want to go into it in public because you might eventually hear this one day and you might get really, really mad about it. But um, at the time, it seemed like the best thing to do because it was a better option for him to be doing something more positive, if that makes sense. Yeah. And what do your parents think it of was, your friendship with this fella? Um, I told about this before to them, and they, they really wanted me to get out of this friendship. And I really disagree with that because even though he might be crazy, he might be nuts, he still has really, really irredeemable qualities. And I think that... And what are those qualities? I, 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 he's, um, he was, I have a... Okay, so I have barely any friends for... I was never really a social um, social person in my childhood, and so he was the first friend in like four years that I really had, and he was the first person to really listen to me, and he was very generous and kind, and it's yeah, um, yeah. I'm gonna, I don't want to get too out about it, but it's he really helped me a lot, and it just getting through, and I do care for him a lot, and I don't, I don't think. I um I don't think that he should go if uh sorry I I guess I'll say it um he's thinking of committing he was thinking of committing suicide and I don't think all these ideas I think I shouldn't abandon him or be scared away because I see him as a really great person inside I even though he has his flaws like an imperfect gem but he still shines his way now is that because um because he believes in an afterlife and he might meet paul walker after he dies is that oh, yeah, the idea he believes, yeah yeah right. he, he, it's like he, he it's like it's like about paul it's like fish breathing not breathing with water right so you can't live without him does his and mother know like that he has uh, had suicidal thoughts oh definitely he, he talks about um his mother as well and he and she supports she supports whatever. Well, she's she's definitely against suicide, definitely. But it and probably I'm maybe taking a bit more. I'm probably more creeped out about it because I I, I email her kind of a lot and talk to my counselors about it more. But it's like she isn't willing. She's not willing to go to um for her her son to go to counseling until unless he wants to or gets the help he needs unless it's like passive like like Russian therapy, which is compatible with his beliefs. Yeah. Wow. Well, this is, um, you know, this is more than you can handle. You know that, right? It's more than I can handle. So, you know, this, yeah. this is, this is more than you can help or handle. You know that, right? I mean, people who are suicidal I, I and who are yearning to re, re to, to join up in, in heaven with burnt up movie stars, uh, that this is more than a young lady, uh, well-intentioned, intelligent, eloquent, committed, passionate, moral young lady such as yourself, this is way beyond, right? Way above your pay grade. It's way above my pay grade, right? Yeah, I've been. Yeah, it's just been on my mind so much that I don't know. Sorry, I guess it blows it out. But I've been talking to many, many counselors about this, and even. Do you know Aaron Pitsy? Or yes. But I, I've been talking to. Yeah, I've been even. I even emailed her recently about it a bit, um, even though she hasn't replied yet a bit. Um, but it's still. I don't know what to do. I pull out all the cards that I can. You can't no. Listen, listen, listen. You you can't do anything. No, no, no. I mean, I'm very serious about this. 
somebody who was suicidal needs, yeah, needs like significant intervention from professionals who know what they're doing. That's not you. That's not me. That's not his mom. That's not your mom or your dad or probably anyone that you know. You can't do anything. Because, look, if you start owning this, it's going to be paralyzing to you. And the last yeah. thing that you want to do is give suicidal people power over you, right? Uh, I think he sometimes does already. Um, no, I, I get it. it but I'm not sure I mean, the fact that he's telling you that he's suicidal is an unbelievably destructive burden to place on someone. It is absolutely unfair to tell a 17-year-old girl that you're suicidal and then not go and get help. This has got to be hanging over you like horror, right? Like terror, well, like every time the phone rings, right? Yeah. I'm sorry? I've tried as much as, oh, I've tried as, much as I can, even like going to the, calling the counseling services at his university and it's still nothing. Well, I tried as much as I can, like I said, and just, I, 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 I have this hard time of like saying, is this enough or I can't give up or. Well, no, I mean, but, but why, um, I mean, you, you're seeing a therapist, is that right? I mean, are you talking, what does a mental health professional tell you to do? Again, I'm not one of those people, so I don't know what to say, but, um, you know, I would assume maybe you I could, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, talking to my high school guidance counselor, um, that's all I can go to, but, um, he said um, after trying so much, it's now up to him to change if he wants to change. And it's right now we just have to let him be who he is. And uh, I have a hard time kind of personally, I have a talk, talk, sometimes a hard time settling on that because it's his, uh, it's a life, right? And it's so important. But Well, let me, I, yeah, I, I don't think you, you can see it. For, let, me, let me just try and give you a way to look at it that okay. may be unclear to you because, you know, you're right up against it, right? So there's this danger, this fear. This is very anxiety-provoking, right? I mean, a friend that you really care about. How long has he talked about suicidality for? Um, since Paul died. So it's just some, since December. Right. So we have been having weekly conversations or daily sometimes, yeah. Now, has he expressed any concern over having told you that he's suicidal? In other words, has like, he thought um, about its effect on you? Not really, no. Well, okay, okay, now let's just I stop. Hang on, hang on, hang on. No, just stop there for a second, okay? So he's dropping this megaton bomb into your brain. I'm suicidal. And he's not once showed any interest in how that might be affecting you. Not really. I've told him about it might impact others, but he doesn't. Really no, no. I, I'm asked him if he has shown if he has said that. If he he has asked no, you, not if you've really... told him. No. Right. Do you not do you I get how abysmally selfish that is to drop yes. a bomb like that on your friend and then never inquire as to how she's dealing with it? Yeah, I don't think he really realizes it because um, sometimes he goes to such low thoughts. That, yeah, like well, depressing. Well, now you're making excuses for him, and that's that's why this stuff is so dangerous. Oh. Is that you don't know whether you should be making excuses sure. for him or not? I don't know. I don't know either. 
But I do know that it is incredibly destructive to tell a 17-year-old girl that you're suicidal and then not really think about how that might be affecting her. I mean, this is a huge issue in your life, right? It's probably like the last thing you think about at night and probably one of the first things you think about in the morning, right? Yeah, it is. It's incredibly intrusive, right? It's like a guy following you around with a gun. Sorry? Well, he has no one else to talk to, and it's... um, What do you mean he has no one else to talk to? No, no, no. What do you mean he's got no one else to talk to? He's got a mother. Does he have well, a, he, he's got a mother. He's got a father. He's got therapists if, well, if they want. I'm sorry? He doesn't have a, he doesn't have a father, but... Um, but I know his, his original father in Cambodia was gone. Wait, what happened to... Did, did he get adopted into a single mother household? Yeah. Oh, but, okay. Um, yeah. Actually, you know what? I actually didn't know if single moms could adopt... I thought they'd follow the stats and try and get two couple households. But anyway, neither here nor there. But he's got a mom to talk to. He's got a guidance counselor to talk to. His mom, you said, comes from wealth. So I'm sure she'd be more than happy to pay for a therapist. Right? But you don't put this stuff on a 17-year-old girl. You are uh, young. You are energetic. You are intelligent. This should be your time to enjoy your life. Not worrying about whether your friend is going to commit suicide. It's incredibly destructive of him to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the only one, he says that he's only comfortable talking to me and his mother, and that's it. So it's... Oh, so he does some, someone else to talk to, who is his mother, right? Now, have you talked to his yeah. mother about his suicidality, and what are her plans? Um, I've emailed her. I've emailed her a couple times before he read the emails because he has her, her account um, password. Um, but she said she only take him to counseling if he only wants to see it. That said, now though, um, because he wants to pass life aggression therapy, he feels better, but that's because um, he believes that Paul is going to be reincarnated. But, uh, it, like it, um, you said, it's just, well, I said, I guess, but you believe what you want to believe, and I'm not sure if he might go into, well, a low again and, or make an excuse for himself to get depressed and I'm not sure what to do after that. Right. Right. Well, it doesn't sound to me like you're on the verge of taking my advice, but I hope that you will at least uh, think about it. Yeah, I will. You don't, you don't know what happened to this guy in the womb. You don't know what happened to this guy in his early childhood. Do you know how old he was when he was adopted? A toddler. Like, he was in Canada already by the age of four, I estimate. Right. So, you know what, 70 to 80% of his brain had already been developed by the time, mm-hmm. you know, all this was passed. So, you don't know what happened to him when he was young. No. But, so, so... This is way beyond your capacity to fix. I'm incredibly sorry that this shadow is even in your life. Like, this is, this is so wrong on so many levels. I, I can't even tell you how outrageous this is. Like, on his part, or it's just... It's on his part. Overall. Now, I mean, yeah. he's your age, right? So he's kind of a kid, too. So, yeah. But 
if his mom knows that you know about her son's suicidality, I mean, she should be springing into action to relieve the burden from you. Well, he'll go if he wants to go. It's like, you know, she should be sitting down with your parents and saying, I'm so incredibly sorry that my son dumped this unbelievably heavy load on your daughter. What a terrifying and terrible thing he did to her. I don't think you can see it because you're close and you care about the guy and so on. Yeah, and I feel but, guilty. Like, if you ever listen to this, you probably... Well, yeah, and, and, and also, if... Uh, I mean, w- if he kills himself, and you're going to be like, oh, wh- wh- what did I do wrong, right? Mm. What if I could have done something more, but... Well, what if I could have done something more? And when does this end? When does the statute of limitations for this threat run out? When can you actually have a friendship with him that's based upon pleasure in his company rather than fear of the consequences, right? I mean, you, you were telling me, I say to my face, but we can't see each other, you were telling me in my ear all of the wonderful qualities this guy has. Yeah. I'm sorry, I must blow a general raspberry in that direction. People with great qualities <laughs> don't burden 17-year-old kids with talk of suicide and then not go and get help. This is not a heroic uh, or positive force in the universe, to say the least, right? Actually, so I guess I can see your point. I will tell you, I hate people who kill themselves or who threaten it. I hate those people. I really do. I said this before and I'll say it again. Assholes, all of them. Look, maybe your life is unbearable. Maybe you want to die. I don't know. I'm not you. But if, if people are like that, for God's sake, like in the love of all that's holy, for the love of all that's holy, make it look identical to an accident. You know, and, and don't say it and use it to have power over people and control them and manipulate them and, and so on, right? I mean, if you're going to kill yourself, I, I wish nobody would kill themselves. I think people should go and get help. And so, I mean, unless they're, I don't know, some terminal illness or godforsaken amounts of pain or whatever, right? But people who suicide, who leave suicide notes and who uh, blame people or who, you know, it's such an act of ultimate fuck you aggression. Excuse me. Frack you <laughs> aggression. Okay. You know, if, if you don't, you know, if people don't want to live, then, you know, drive on an icy road and go over a cliff. Oh, that's too bad. You know, he, that's terrible. I, you know, at least give people the chance to, to mourn, to, to grieve and all that sort of stuff. But the people who like shoot themselves in front of people or who tell people they're going to kill themselves and, and so on, I, I, I just, I really hate that stuff. It's like, go and get the help that you need. And, and people who particularly weigh that on you, on a, on a young girl, to me, this is unconscionable. It's incredibly destructive. Do your parents know that he's threatened suicide? I've talked to them just once because um, late at night after I talked to him because I was really scared and I didn't know. Um, it, I guess it was natural just to talk it to someone. It was my parents. They're not the greatest people to talk to when it comes to this, but they know. Yeah. And what are their and plans? They say that. Uh, um. 
clients, they say um, never to be in a car alone with him. They're like if he's driving. So it's, um, I have, um, I at least have to make sure that at least his mother's driving when we're going to somewhere like his house or something, or I'm going actually. Huh. But um, they're not really, they don't really actually have any contact with him at all because uh, it'd be really, really awkward because my parents aren't the greatest uh, socializers and yeah, I'm sorry. Right. Well, <coughs> excuse me. I hope that, I mean, I obviously can't tell you what to do, but I hope that you will consider this. I think mm -hmm. that you should call a suicide hotline and explain what's happening. You don't have to give your name. You don't have to give your friend's name. It can be as anonymous as this is. But I hope that you will call a suicide. Sorry. He's not considering suicide now because he got the answers he wanted from the past like regression therapy, but do you think I still should call them either way? Wait, he's not suicidal? He, okay, so just, he's still very obsessive, yes, but he's not that suicidal as he was just yesterday. He got the answer he wanted, but I'm still kind of worried about it. If, if his ideas will change. So yesterday um, he was suicidal. But then a past lives therapist yes. told him that Paul Walker was going to be in, reincarnated, so he wants to stay in the land of the living yeah. in case he meets him, right? In the form of a badger or yeah. a melon or a peanut or something. Okay. It's fun. All right. So uh, I, I think I would, given that it was just yesterday, because I, I, I don't yeah. like I don't know I don't know what to tell you. This is this is way above my pay grade. So, but I think there are experts out there, particularly people who've dealt with this. So it's call a suicide hotline and say, my friend has been suicidal. What do I do? Right, this is something for experts, but I'm just telling you it's a horrendous burden to lay upon you when you should be getting ready for your life and enjoying the remainder of high school and enjoying your time. Uh, it's an incredibly heavy burden to lay upon you, and it doesn't sound like the adults are doing a whole lot in your life to help out, and for which I'm incredibly sorry. But I would call the hotline, stay anonymous, and just say, this is the situation. What am I going to do? And hopefully they can give you some advice that will be helpful. Because I don't know what uh, what necessarily to cancel. I mean, I'll tell you what I would do. Um, what I would do is I would I would begin to extricate myself from the relationship. Really? And and there, I would do that, you know, in part because he's not showing empathy towards you, right? He's not showing empathy towards you, right? And if your dad, you know, if you were a, a bubble kid, uh, because of your dad's anxiety, then that was not necessarily empathetic, toward, empathetic towards you either, right? So you need people in your life who are going to give you benefits, not give you crazy past life suicidality, Paul Walker idealization madness, right? Regardless of how it affects you. So... I would, uh, I you know, I would up your standards for friends. Y you can do better. I barely have any. Well, but this is one reason why. You know, you say this was your first friend from four years ago. This is probably one of the reasons why you don't have better friends. Because people come around, you see this guy, and they're like, whoa. I'm not hanging with those two, right? Because he's nuts. Right. Uh, Keeping this well, friend he, he, is it, like a repelling other friends, right? 
made you. Uh, he is really, like, personality-wise, externally, he's really, he's really the bubbly um, person, but um, and really extroverted and and just, like the entertainer of the like the room. But um, yeah, look, crazy sorry, people can yeah, be great on stage. Yeah, crazy people can be great on stage. So what? I don't know. Sorry, I don't know what to say. I mean, well, I um, I hope it's just something to think about. And uh, I'm incredibly sorry that this shadow is in your life, and that your friend is acting in this way. I am uh, I'm incredibly sorry for that. Uh, it is, to me, an unfair burden to place upon anyone, let alone someone as young as yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that if he has passed the danger point of suicidality, and again, somebody you talk to with a hotline or some expert you talk to or your therapist will advise you about this in a way that I can't. If he's passed the danger point and he's now committed to living, uh, I would uh, I would begin to uh, extricate myself. You know, it doesn't have to be sudden. It doesn't have to be dramatic. It doesn't have to be horrible. I'd just be a little less available and I'd just be spend a little bit less time and and so on. And then start looking around for friends who aren't looking to reunite with uh, Krispy Kreme celebrities in the afterlife or reincarnated or whatever. I mean, I think that's, I think that's uh, where I would set my standards. But anyway, I mean, I, I hope that's been helpful. I thank you so much for sharing. I know it's a very, very difficult topic. Um, but uh, oh, no, it, it I was, hope that you will think about it. It was interesting. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, all thank right, you very well, much for your call. Much. And no, don't apologize at all. And uh, very, very best wishes uh, for this. And if you get a chance, just uh, drop uh, a line and, and let us know how you did. All right. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much. No, 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 no. Next. All right, Nick. Go ahead, Nick. Stefan, how are you going? Uh, well, how are you doing? Can you hear me there? Yeah, just fine. Thank you. Uh, very well. Thank you. Um, look, uh, uh, first of all, I was very taken by the previous caller, and uh, uh, I've, I have worked in uh, Australia as a, a couple therapist for an awful long time, and I came across a lot of uh, people who, um, and certainly over the phone as well, who were... Uh, Definitely uh, suicidal, and uh, it's probably the the, the most difficult uh, to work with. And um, really, it's uh, actually the the previous caller uh, and the and the, the chattel uh, brought it all back to me. But um, well, I'm sure she is still listening. Is there? I mean, given that you actually have some credentials in the field of uh, mental health, is there? Anything that you would like to to say? Any any egregious mistakes that I would have made that you can correct? Uh, if she's still listening. Well, I mean, well, one of the things that I thought about was um, was who, who's supporting her, mm-hmm. and if she's going to main, maintain contact with this, this fellow, then who is supporting her in this process? And uh, if he's not the sort to uh, seek help. And indeed, doesn't want to seek help. Then uh, I, I, I think I, I seem to remember you suggesting that uh, maybe she should exit the relationship, uh, which is probably actually very—I uh, would have thought—would have been a good idea for her own sake. Uh, 
because ultimately, I mean, we, ultimately uh, we're responsible for our, for our own lives and how we conduct them. And uh, as much as we can feel for somebody else, it doesn't mean we doesn't mean that we need to go down with them. Yeah, I mean, I was. That's why I was asking about what the adults in her life are doing with the knowledge of the suicidality and her relationship with the man. I mean, if my daughter is in high school and has a friend who's suicidal, I mean, everything stops until that gets dealt with. Like, I don't go to work. I don't do any shows. Uh, you know, we go straight over to that parent's house. We go straight over to anyone's house who it is, and we we work it out, and we get the person to help. Like, everything would stop until that problem is dealt with. So uh, the, the the lack of support, I think, you know, where her dad's saying, well, just don't drive in a car with him, that to me is not as proactive as it perhaps could be. And I, I think it is. It's an incredibly difficult situation for a young girl without adult support to be in. And, uh, yeah, anyway, so I appreciate your thoughts. Is there anything else you wanted to add to that? Uh, no, no, I, my, 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 no, 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 that's fine. Thank you. That's fine. All right, so what's on your mind? Oh, well, nothing's really on my mind. I, uh, I originally uh, uh, emailed your program because uh, I, I came across your YouTube videos, which uh, uh, I was really quite taken by. Uh, uh, they filmed me in on a, a lot of uh, bits of social history that uh, I hadn't thought about for quite a long time, like Marxism. And, uh, and the most recent one I listened to or watched was... Uh, uh, your your thoughts of and uh, your your little history of uh, Nelson Mandela, which I wasn't so aware of his uh, early history. Um, so basically, and also I, I really came across your uh, you, your uh, talks through um, listening to Warren Farrell. I've I've noticed a number of times you've you've interviewed Warren Farrell, and so I became interested in. Uh, in actually uh, being interviewed on your program at some stage, and the best I could do was the call in. So I thought I'd call in um, because I've been very taken by um, uh, what I would consider to be the great strides that men have made over the last 20, 25 years in Australia. And uh, I would say a lot of them are doing things very well, a lot of things very, very well, much better, certainly much better than they were before. Uh, when we uh, when you we had what was colloquially called the the men's movement down here, which I think might have been the same in the United States as well, um, I, I've written a book about this, but I, I'm curious to know from you uh, what you would consider that men have been doing well, um, or indeed much better uh, over the last twenty years or so. That was the question that I had for you. Yeah, I I mean. It's a mixed bag, I think, for men over the last little while. So there have been some relaxation as far as the breadwinner cage goes. So there is more acceptance and portrayal of men as nurturers, as men as intimate fathers. We're not sort of the anonymous man in a gray flannel suit going out to rustle up the bacon for the house in the suburbs that we used to be. So I think that there is... I mean, I'm a stay-at-home dad, and I've not received any particularly negative feedback uh, or, you know, that's your pussy. Or, uh, so th I think there has been some relaxation of man, the money-making macho machine. I think that has diminished to some degree. I think that there has been a huge collapse of 
men's opportunities in two major areas, which is, you know, the manufacturing sector in America and in Canada, maybe in Australia too. And, um, in education, uh, boys uh, in the revolution that came out in the eighties in particular, where there was this myth that girls start underachieving and it was all nonsense. And the data has been exploded many times by Christina Hoff Summers and other, um, the other women and men skeptical of feminism. And so this whole, they reject all of this education to be more quote, girl friendly. And, um, I think it's just lowered educational standards for everyone, but particularly for boys who like to be active and hands on and so on. And now they're just, you know, boys are viewed as defective girls and need to be drugged to make them more like girls, which I think is pretty wretched. So, and I, so I think there has been some progress, but I think economically men, you know, the recession is, to a large degree, a male phenomenon, and it's a uh, blue-collar phenomenon. And I, I think most fundamentally, though, the degree to which men have been shunted aside as caregivers in the family to the point now where the majority of women under 30 are having children outside of wedlock is truly appalling. And the effects of that are going to be felt for many, many, many generations to come. And um, men are still necessary because men pay the majority of taxes. So men are still necessary to pay for this single mother culture, but they're no longer involved in terms of intimacy. I think that's desperately bad for moms. It's desperately bad for dads. And, you know, as, as always, it's worst of all for children. So I think there's been some mixed bag, but I think that overall... It's been quite negative. I think a lot of the military stereotypes have diminished as well. You know, the men go fight in war and so on. So there's been some relaxation of those stereotypes uh, and some concepts of male disposability are being talked about and so on. But I think overall, I think that uh, because the single moms can get money from others for free, particularly from men, they no longer think of men as necessary individuals in the same way that if like young men could get sex for free, they wouldn't care that much about the women. And so I think it is pretty bad for men out there. And, uh, unfortunately it's going to take a brutal crash in the economy for women to remember just how essential men are for the civilization uh, of children and the sustenance of the family. And because this is all going to come crashing down mathematically, it has to, so um, that's sort of my thoughts. What do you think? Um, well, uh, I was interested in, uh, I've actually noticed, I've been involved in, uh, in what we call men's work since all the early 1990s. And I agree, and I agree with you that uh, it takes a good, recession, a good recession to bring out basic community values, uh, such as respect and uh, humility and all that sort of good stuff. Uh, and I certainly noticed in the early 90s that uh, a lot of men were joining men's groups and I might say I might say a varying quality. Um, but what I've noticed in that time is that uh, men are talking more. I mean, I can remember in, uh, in uh, a number of trips that I did into really quite remote rural areas uh, of being in, in a deli. I don't know if you've got things called delis over there where you can buy a coffee and a cake and a pastry. Yeah. Uh, as recently as uh, uh, six months ago, and uh, I remember I was, I was sitting there with my wife, and uh, 
and there was uh, an elderly gentleman uh, there who had really sort of the banal, banal hands that you would expect of somebody who worked on the land. But he was sitting there and having a coffee with fun. They're very neatly pressed jeans and being very attentive to his wife. And uh, and that's one thing that struck me. And the other thing was that there are a couple of other men at another table uh, talking about the prostate. Yeah, I, I can uh, I can assure you this type of discussion and this sort of attention uh, uh, was not occurring uh, within those sort of spaces uh, 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 as recently as ten years ago, and uh, I've certainly noticed with uh, men here that uh, not only are they more inclined to talk, they're more inclined to talk about stuff that really matters to them. Uh, I think the, the other big change, which I think men are doing very well, is, is is really looking at their health and saying, well, you know, I want to be around. I want to be around in a healthy manner, and not only for myself, but also that I can see my grandkids uh, grow up. I mean, uh, I understand that uh, in the United States you have a phenomenon uh, very similar to Australia where you have these whole convoys of bicycle riders uh, streaming up and down the highways and um, and they all look fantastic. And then uh, and, I, and I, I have deliberately stopped at a few uh, uh, cafes in the country, and watched these bike riders turn up, and they must be, you know, you know, forty or fifty in this convoy, and they look fantastic. And uh, it's only when they get off and take off their helmets, and uh, you realise that these, a lot of these men are over sixty. And, and and looking very good, thank you very much. And the, the smile in their eyes is just really quite uh, an amazing thing and a very refreshing thing to see. So I think really longevity is a very major thing for men as well. Um, I think a lot more men are much more inclined to uh, be able to say, and I think this is a testimony to um, not only the good sense and the humility that a lot of men have, to say, well, okay, you earn more, um, you, you earn a much better job, you want to work anyway, and, and often sometimes the woman doesn't, uh, I will stay at home and uh, uh, and take care of the kids. I mean, this was not a question that arose in the 70s, certainly not in mainstream culture. Um, I think probably the biggest, and, and along those lines, I would say that uh, fatherhood, the whole idea around fatherhood and the the wanting to be involved with uh, uh, with the children uh, would have to be the story uh, of the 20th century so far when it comes to um, uh, familial relationships because, uh, you know, all you've got to do is go uh, walk down the street and you, you will see there are a lot of men uh, pushing prams. Uh, myself, when I go down to uh, the local uh, of the coffee house here, I mean, I, I will see fathers. I remember... Uh, with one last week, I said, you're, you're, um, you're taking care of, the ch- care of the children. He said, yeah, of course I am. He said, well, you know, my wife earns a lot more. He said, look, it's a brave new world, and I, I love spending time with my kids. Having said all that, a lot, there are a lot of men who, are, who have a, a sense of ambivalence about it because, you know, we, we cannot help the way we've been conditioned as males that we would like to be the breadwinner as well. But there's also a much greater sense of, the, uh, my my marriage is about my family now. Uh, it's not just about me the way it used to be. But you know, I had to adopt this role. It's it's not not like that anymore. It's a it's a much uh, very much a brave new world. And I would say that uh, a bloke now uh, really uh, can be whatever he wants to be. 
I mean, obviously there are cultural limitations, and I was thinking about this this morning, but uh, I think a, a great uh, thing to think about, and I, I might even uh, write about it at some stage, is uh, the whole attitude towards men's clothes, because I can't help noticing in the... Uh, in uh, in the, in the southern Mediterranean, the men wear much brighter and lighter colours and even wear white suits. You know, I can tell you, if you wore a white suit in Australia walking down the street, uh, you would certainly be looked at askance. And um, I say a lot more men are actually, I say a lot more men actually having fun with their children and being, uh, and you know, getting down and getting dirty with them. It's, uh, I think it's a wonderful thing to see. So I think a lot of men have... Uh, I think the world is, is uh, uh, liberated. There has been a much greater liberation of men. I think a lot more men are happier for it if they're willing to take if they're willing to take that opportunity opportunity that's been given to them. So there you have a, a very brief, relatively convoluted answer from downtown South Caulfield in Melbourne. Right. Well, that's uh, that's good to know. That's good to know. I mean, I've never particularly fallen for a lot of male stereotypes. You know, it is problematic growing up without a father, but at least you don't have bad imprinting, so to speak. And so, uh, I think that is, um, I think that has been beneficial for me in some ways, being able to sort of invent myself without the template of history driving me down a particular kind of train track. So, I think, <clears throat> I think all will be beneficial as long as men continue to gain awareness, right? You know, this consciousness raising that the feminists did in the 50s and 60s was, you know, from Simone de Beauvoir onwards, was fantastic. And I think we just have to help men to understand the depth and passion that they can bring to the topic of true equality between the genders, uh, to continue to raise consciousness so that men don't continue to destroy themselves through drink and drugs and workaholism and so on, to keep any kind of non-conformist thoughts at bay. I think that's been my goal, is to try and remind men that the deep passions in the male heart are an essential engine for the progress of the world. And yet so often we, we face this view of men in society that, you know, we're just shallow, skirt-chasing, drunken louts and... And it's the women who are wise and deep and patient with our foolishness and so on. You know, that old joke, you know, you see a woman with two kids and you say, how many kids? Oh, you say, you see a woman, you say, how many kids do you have? Well, two, but three if I count my husband. Ha, ha, ha. You know, this is uh, silly and insulting stuff that, that you hear all the women who get together and crab about boyfriends and husbands and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, I, th I think if we can just remind men to, to go deep and, and to connect with their deeper selves, I think that will be a huge engine for change. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I've been facilitating men's groups for over 20 years now, and I've made a film about it as, uh, as well. And uh, it never ceases to amaze me, despite the fact that I've heard it many, many times, that within 20 minutes of a man being in a, in a men's group, he will uh, visibly relax because he realises that we're really all in the same boat here. Because a lot of men, uh, and I heard it again this morning, that uh, lead very isolated lives. One fellow was saying to me, the only time I can talk, that I have time to talk to my mates because he's, he, he works uh, 40, 50 hours a week. He's got a, a wife and kids to come home to. The only real time he can get to talk to his mates uh, is on Saturday morning at 6 o'clock. And there are a lot of men like this.
But when if they can if they can uh, give themselves the time just for two hours a fortnight, two hours a fortnight to be in a well-facilitated men's group where they can where they can listen to other men and where they feel that they've been listened to time and time again. I've heard the men say that uh, I've, I've gone home and my wife says I'm on a quieter and I can do what needs to be done with uh, what needs to be done in my family. And the reason why is because, and they, I ask, well, why do you think that's the case? And I say, because very rarely, generally, do I feel like I am being listened to. And obviously this uh, flows on to uh, their, their wives as well because often the men don't feel listened to. And if you speak to the women, they, they don't feel listened to. And uh, it's uh, often the home. Like you, for want of a better word, I send them home with it. I want you to practice listening to your wife and reflecting what she says. And I would like you to um, ask the same from her. Because if we want equality between the sexes, um, then uh, I would suggest that, that we actually need to listen to one another and uh, try and begin to understand, uh, if even if that's possible, to begin to understand what it's like to walk in, in their shoes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel some resistance to what you're saying, which, you know, doesn't mean anything other than I feel some resistance to what you're saying. I I don't know that men need more listen to women advice. I frankly think women need more listen to men advice. Uh, because I think that men have been told oh, forever, never, you know, women need to be listened to. And I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't for a moment... Suggest I wouldn't for a moment suggest that I think that uh, from what I from what I can see that both genders have a lot of trouble trying to understand where the other's coming from. Oops. Can you hear me? Yep. Oh, you can hear me. I heard a bit yep. and I thought, oh god, I've been disconnected. No, that was no, somebody messaging you on Skype. That, uh... Oh, okay. Um no, I would say that both genders need to to really try and try and understand where one another is coming from. I mean, uh, I've I've heard many many women say, "Look, he never listens to me," and I, I can assure you that I've heard just as many men say, "Well, she doesn't listen to me either." Right. And what I find is the, uh, the the really it's the quality of the it's the quality of the listening which is important. And what I say, what I often say to the men is that. You know, I, I don't know that you'll ever understand your wife, but the, the most I think you can say is you probably understand her better than anybody else. And to presume that you understand her is to begin to put her in a box and uh, ultimately the road to ruin called boredom. And uh, and I've seen that all too often. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, certainly we should model the behaviour that we want, but uh, I would certainly like for uh, more people to be saying to women that they need to really listen to and be curious about the emotional lives of their men. You know, there's an old story. Uh, you've probably heard this. Uh, you've heard this cliche before about um, uh, a, a couple goes to a marriage counselor. They've been married for 30 years. And uh, the wife uh, talks for half an hour, complaining that the husband never says anything, never talks to her, never shares his thoughts and feelings. And then finally the therapist has to interrupt the woman and turns to the man and says, why is that true? Why, why is that the case? And he said, well, I, I didn't want to interrupt. And I think there's some kind of truth in that. You know, I, I think that more people it would be great if more people were out, out there saying to women, listen, you have a lot to learn about emotional, about the emotional life for men. Like that's something you never hear. 
But some of the, you know, many of the greatest and deepest and most powerful emotional works in certainly Western literature, art and movies are made by men. I mean, are we really going to try and find more, better explication of intergenerational conflict and primal passions than Shakespearean dramas? I mean, they're astounding. I think that women could learn a lot about emotional depth from men. Uh, Men can learn a lot from women, but uh, all we've been told is how men can learn from women and men should be more like women, but I don't think we hear a lot uh, about how women can learn from men. Uh, and, And this goes back to the single mom thing, where the idea that a man is as functionally necessary for the mental health of his offspring as his sperm is to their very existence is something that is incomprehensible to most people, um, even though it's something that is completely obvious. But uh, I think reasserting the value of masculinity is important, and, but I don't think it's fundamentally going to happen until the financial system of exploitation changes. Yeah, I, I couldn't comment on that because I haven't really... I have, I have, I have read about... Uh, I have read about this before, um, but I, I'd like to go back to a point that you've uh, made before about uh, about um, how men's how women see men. Uh, took me uh, your comments took me back to my film, uh, and I remember a number of women saying uh, uh, at the time, which was what two thousand five. I didn't know. I didn't. They said I didn't know that men felt like this, and one of the women who had in fact been married for over twenty five years. Um, when I when I uh, I gave a couple of talks about my book, um, ten stories about what men are doing well, uh, three women came up to me at the end of my first talk, and one of them said, uh, "I don't think my my husband didn't do anything well," and the second one said to me, um, "Oh, there's only one thing he did well, but you wouldn't tell me what it was," and the third one said, uh, "You're very brave." Now I thought I would do uh, an anecdotal study, and the next day. I was uh, down the street and uh, I, I met this uh, woman who uh, uh, who, I'd, who I had uh, met on occasions. And I said, look, I've written this book, 10 stories about what men are doing well. What do you think men are doing well? And she said, um, what are you doing about rape? And uh, the last example I'll give you is what I've heard from many, many men is when I say, ask them, what do you think you're doing well? And they, a lot of them actually don't know because they haven't really thought about it. But what they all indicate is where people's mindsets are in relation to the the women in relation to the men in their lives uh, and the men in relation to themselves, which tells me that a lot of uh, there's not a whole lot of self-reflection that occurs. Uh, I can remember one uh, one uh, uh, radio journalist when I was talking to him about uh, uh, my book, Ten Stories About What Men Are Doing Well. And he said, you, he said, I can't think of anything that men do well. And you thought of ten? Now, if, 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 if people actually, uh, this sort of sings testimony to the fact that um, uh, most of us tend to uh, look at the negative in another person and stereotype them accordingly <laughs> without appreciating all the good things that they do bring to the relationship and, and value them as a bit more of a fully human being. And this is where the yeah, I think the um, comes into I would certainly argue that something like civilization um, is something that men do quite well. I mean, it wasn't women who built uh, mines and sewage factories, and you know, when the power went out here in Ontario, 
it was not women who were up there clambering and cutting down trees and building the power lines back up and so on. So yeah, I, I think the fact that civilization functions is one thing that men is do uh, men are doing quite well, uh, which you know men don't really get thanked for at all. I mean, as as some men say, you know, well, if if we're all just rapists and exploiters, let's uh, let's not get involved with women then, and let's let them have this wonderful life by themselves, which they will, will very quickly find is not that wonderful. But yeah, I think I think civilization as a whole. Is, is something that men do do quite well, which women benefit quite a bit from. Yes, yes, I quite agree. Uh, um, uh, my, my, I, I've heard I've heard you talk about this about about this type of thing before, and you speak about it quite well. Uh, but my focus was uh, in my book was really on um, ways of being that I've seen men doing well in, including uh, including struggling. To understand what's going on. I mean, you can actually do that very well too. I'm because sorry, I'm not sure. Don't I understand, understand that. What's going on. Well, say um, you've got a fellow who's uh, uh, whose marriage is broken up, and uh, and he, he he cannot fathom why he why this has occurred, and uh, and it will take him some time to work this out. I mean, a lot of, uh, well, some men that I've met, they will uh, immediately go to the drink or gamble or find another woman really quick uh, without thinking about and reflecting on what has occurred in his marriage to lead to its demise. Uh, but there are other men who, despite the fact that it's difficult, they will they will really try to understand and understand what has occurred so they don't repeat them the same mistakes again. Um, and that's what I often think of as really quite a beautiful struggle to occur, even though it's occurring in circumstances that uh, uh, that is uh, most people's worst nightmare. I mean, no, I, I don't remember many people who got married so they could get divorced in a hurry. Uh, most people I've met sort of uh, got married to uh, uh, be married for the rest of their lives and to watch uh, the, dream sh the dream shattered is a, a terrible experience for them. Sure. And I mean, that's inevitable. I mean, if you can unilaterally end a contract and get paid for doing so, then uh, that's going to stack the economic odds in favor of divorce, which I think is uh, is pretty terrible. I mean, you know, no fault divorce came in and the uh, marriage, uh, the divorce rate largely led by unsatisfied women went through the roof because, you know, I mean, uh, you know, most people in marriage can be tough at times and you stick it out because you've, you know, if you have integrity to the vows you stick it out because of the vows and so on and of course women you know they can break the vows and men can too but women can break the vows and generally continue to receive money uh, in a lot of places and um, I don't know any other place where that's really <laughs> really a valid option for any kind of contract uh, but so anyway I, I mean I think that that's all stuff that is you know I'm an anarchist and so I'm highly critical of state power and that's where state power has really, I think, tipped the balance point uh, so that it's really uh, not uh, not towards the favor of men. And marriage is highly risky, uh, a highly risky endeavor for, for men these days. Yes, yes, I quite agree. Well, you, um, uh, I'm happy to get off now because you've, you've, you've given me some food for thought, Stefan, and uh, I, I thank you very much. You've given me some food for thought. I was very interested in your answer, in your answers. Now I will I will do a bit more reading on um, 
on the economics of the whole situation. I used to be an economics teacher, but I've I moved I, and an accountant many, many years ago. But I moved into counselling and I've forgotten the, and I, I haven't thought so much about the links, the, the those beautiful links that I often hear you make in some of these talks. And you've uh, you spurred me on to sort of go back to my economics textbooks. In fact, I might have to get some new copies because uh, I'm sure I'm at least 25 years out of date. So I can't I can't thank you enough for uh, for your time today. Oh, thank you very much. It was a, a very pleasant chat. Thank you so much for calling in. I guess we have time for one more caller before my voice gives out. So, so uh, Mike, who do we have? All right, Marie. Go ahead, Marie. Uh, thank you, Michael. Um, hi, Steph. First, hi, Marie. I want how are you to, doing? to say <laughs> good. How are you? Well, thank you. Um, good. So first I wanted to say thank you for everything you do because recently I got into all of your videos and talks through YouTube. Um, I am a nanny. So while my, uh, the child that I nanny for is napping, I spend, you know, like six hours a day just like listening to these things. And I really like open my mind to a lot of things and I am really appreciative of it. So I oh, thank you so much, and I'm, I'm sure you're doing a great job with the children, which I think is the most important philosophical work of our, of our time, or perhaps of any time, so I certainly appreciate that. I agree. I agree 100%, and it's they are really the light of my life, so I'm constantly surprised and amazed by them. So, anyways, I could talk about that forever. Um, sort of what I wanted to touch on today was a problem that I'm kind of well, I've been dealing with it, you know, my entire life, but mainly it's at the peak right now. I'm trying to focus on getting my sister out of our parents' abusive household. I no longer live there anymore, um, but I don't currently have the means to do so. And I'm trying to figure out how I'd be able to offer her emotional, like, safety until I can get her out of there. And I don't, I, I don't even know where to start because I, I, I've been doing things where I visited my parents' household on the weekends and I spend the weekends there with her. But because I've had so much like hate and resentment for towards my mother and father for like a lot of things, like I turn into this terrible person and I end up taking out my aggressions on her sometimes and on them. And I don't think it's helping in the way that I wish it was. And I'm hoping that I can readdress this with some insight, perhaps. And sorry, can you help me understand where it is that you're acting out? Where, like how I'm acting out? Yeah, like I'm under what circumstances with who and so on. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, my sister has quite, I mean, I, my sister and I have a terrible relationship with our father and you know, uh, not an awful relationship with my mother, but I do definitely have some gripes with things that she's done and participated in. Um, so because of her broken relationship with my dad, she's very snappy and resent, she resents him and she spends a lot of time in her room, which I can't blame her for because it's just a toxic environment. Um, because she just is constantly managing her thoughts and opinions and it's just awful. So when I go there, I'm, I'm put in this position where I'm 
I've been trying to disconnect from them for so long, but I am back there and I have to constantly manage my thoughts because of the crazy things they say or do. And because she is hostile about it, I get hostile towards them about it. And then I also get hostile towards her because I just can't handle all of this negative energy around me. And I, I just get snippy. And I really wish that I, I wouldn't do that. And I've been trying to control it. But A snippy how? Like, what do you mean? It's that hard mean? sometimes. Like, she'll say something snappy to my dad. And I'd be like, uh, Ellen, do you think it's necessary to speak to him in that tone? But I, the thing is, like, I totally know where she's coming from when she's speaking to him like that because she has a lot of hate and she's, she's with them all the time. And I, she doesn't get the, like, this away during the week that I do. So I, I feel bad. I, I feel guilty for leaving her there. Why? Well, first of all, you're not leaving. Is she an adult? Yes. She is. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. Was she a brain in the tank? Is she what? What yeah. is it? No, nah, no, nah, she is. It's just, you know, she's my little sister, so I care for her a lot, and sometimes I baby her, so. Um, you think? Yeah, she's an adult. She's an adult. <laughs> okay. Of course. So, um, so why? There's a couple of things. Let me just talk about a couple of things that I noticed in what you were saying. And it's a great topic, I, and I hugely appreciate you bringing it up. First of all, you said you don't. You have a terrible relationship with your father. Yes. I would reframe that in that your father has created a terrible relationship with you. Okay, yes. I mean, I, and I would you know why that. that's important, right? Yes, I know why that's important. Sometimes I forget about the language and how it definitely is really important to look at things like that. Yeah, do you know, I can tell tell you a little story which will involve a song that I don't have the voice to sing at the moment, but there's a Phil Collins song. Um, just just as I thought it was going all right. I found out I'm wrong, man. I thought I was right. It's always the same. It's just yeah, a I shame. That's, that's all. And this song was stuck in my yeah. head. And and it's uh, now I know why. Because all my relationships were screwed up in my twenties. And that song was mm -hmm. stuck in my head. Over and over and over again. And now the song, of yeah. course, my unconscious was grabbing onto the song to try and tell me something. But I, the only way that I could change that and get it out of my head was I had to sing to myself, just when I thought it was going all wrong, I found out I'm right when I thought I was wrong. <laughs> it's always the same. It's not a shame. That's all. Like I had to reverse it in my head. Just to, and then it left me alone because my unconscious said, oh, it's not ready to deal with it. Okay. And right. The language of how we describe things is really important. And you say, well, I have a bad relationship with, this is your father. I mean, it's his job to have a good relationship with you. He, as I said to the first caller, he defines the relationship and so on, right? Yes. So that's an important thing to remember. And then you talked about having a better relationship with your mother. And your mother is still married to your father? Uh, yes, they are. However... I mean, I, I don't think it really counts for anything because they were matched <laughs> and they never really, yeah, they, they have a arranged marriage. So they were never really into it and they still aren't. Mm. I don't think staying in a marriage necessarily means like commitment or anything like that. It's just comfortable. It's comfortable for them and safe. Yeah. How is it comfortable for them if it's not comfortable for you? 
It's like taking my daughter to a horror film and saying, well, well I like I it. I wouldn't say it's com- – right, right. I mean, it's comfortable in the sense that they're really good at denial and they they hate change. So because they can live in the state of denial and silence and they hate change so much, it's easier to just be living in hell than it would be to, like – take the proper steps to be like courageous and end things. So. Right. So if you discount the discomfort and destruction towards your children, it's comfortable. Right. But they're good. That first part of the sentence is quite significant. Like that's literally like my daughter saying I have to pee and me saying, well, we're not stopping because I don't have to. I'm comfortable. Yeah. No, and I know. The fact and this that my is daughter one is of the not reasons... comfortable is why we stop, right? Yes. And I mean, this is one of the reasons that I really have been building up this like continuing continuous like resentment towards my mother, even more so for my dad at this point, because he did what he did and those were terrible, terrible things. But she enables him, she makes excuses for him, she says it's okay. She sees the what truth and then what she denies it all. What did he do that was okay, terrible? Okay, so, okay, well, this is kind of layered. So um, when I was younger, I was molested by my older sister. Um, and when I was a child, obviously, like, this was kind of hard for me to process. And as I grew older, like, eventually the abuse stopped. But then it started again in different ways, like how she would manifest her abuse on me. Um and are you uh, from an Indian, re- with the arranged marriage and the molestation, uh, are you from an Indian family? No, um, my parents were actually unificationists. I don't know if you've ever heard of that like branch of religion, but it's like a Korean form of Christianity. Or... Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so... I mean, a lot of the times, like, I, I just, because of all the abuse my sister caused me, I I hated her. I was upset at her, you know, for good reason, obviously. Um, but as I started to grow and get, like, a better idea of why, you know, evil things happen, I could only come to, like, in an unconscious conclusion that it was because someone had sexually assaulted her, because I don't think, like, a... 10 year old learns this behavior and like like it just comes out of nowhere I don't think that's possible really without like significant childhood trauma in her life um and then it was sort of all confirmed for me when this my 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 younger sister the one who's still in my parents house um she was getting really really close to my dad and they they seemed to have this really good relationship Um, she was really into astronomy for a while and he, he really fostered her. And like in this summer with that, like passion and this summer, not this summer, but the summer that this all happened, um, they were saving up money for a telescope together. So they were doing like odd jobs around the neighborhood that we had lived in at the time for houses and stuff like that, like watching their house or, you know, mowing their lawn, stuff like that. Um, and it was kind of like a father daughter team. Like they seemed to have something really good going. And then I left because I, I went, you know, I, I was doing my life. I was out of town or something. 
and some like really weird thing happened. Like I had borrowed my mom's cell phone and I got this frantic call from my aunt about things being really terrible or something. So I called home and no one would tell me anything. And then later when I got home, people told me that it turns out Child Protective Services uh, came into our family and was wondering if my dad was sexually assaulting my little sister um, because they had the family, one of the families they were house sitting for had found child pornography on their computer. So naturally they were concerned about the daughter and made a call. So because of all of that happening, it kind of confirmed for me like why this happened to me in my childhood with my older sister who also molested my younger sister. So it was just really, it was just really awful. And because of all that happening, I mean, you can't have a good relationship with the man after that. What happened to the investigation? The investigation was kind of really intense. It was really intense. So my mom came to me and she, she had like this kind of heart to heart and she, she ended up like blaming me. She said, I, I'm pretty sure that you made this accusation because the, the caller wanted to remain anonymous for a while. Um, so she didn't know where this accusation was coming from. And she was convinced that I somehow fabricated this elaborate lie to ruin our family or something. I don't know what her logic behind that was. Um, and after Mary, I explained to her. You're kind of pulling my leg, right? How, how so? I'm sorry. I mean, this, first of all, I mean, I'm incredibly sorry for, for all of this stuff in your family. Well, but you, you said you had a fairly good relationship with your mom. No, I don't. I mean, I... Well, you I listened to what you said earlier. You said I have a fairly okay relationship okay, with my yes. mom. Well, that's that's the thing. That's the issue that I have about with the language thing. Like, I, I still need to... I, I really need to correct myself on stuff like that. And I, I, honestly, like... Because, um, I, I mean, I, that's, past, that's like, insane, I, I right? Like I mean, to say that she, yeah, that, she that, that, that her insane. only major issue with your father possessing child pornography was that you may have called CPS. That's what she became outraged about. Yeah. You, I mean, that's like, you can't be serious to say this without a tone of unbelievable outrage is astonishing. She had daughters who molested each other. She had a husband yeah. who looked at child pornography and she gets upset with you. Yeah. No, I know. And I didn't speak to her for a long time after that because I had this conversation, you know, when she was accusing me of that, I had this conversation with her saying, these are the reasons how I, I mean, I didn't make the call, but I, I know this call is factual because of, you know, these factors, these, this evidence that I had uh, against my father, because I had seen it before on his computer. And after this investigation started, his mis his computer mysteriously vanished and he got a new one, like all this stuff. And I told her these things. Wait, sorry. Like, yeah. You, you, sorry. You had seen child pornography on your father's computer before this incident with the investigation. Yes, I had. How old were you when you saw that? Um, I was in high school at the time. So I don't know, like 16 or something. So what happened with the investigation? Uh, the investigation was just sort of like inconclusive. 
I don't really know what happened to it because we, they hired a lawyer and they dealt with everything. And because Ellen had, as far as I know, she hasn't been, and we have a, a very close relationship. Um, he sorry, hadn't done anything. Sister? Yes. My younger sister. I'm sorry. Um, and you have a very close relationship. Yes. I, I have a close relationship with her. So, I mean, as far as I know, he hasn't sexually assaulted her. Um, so when they, when Child Protective Services spoke to her about it and she said that that had never happened to her, they couldn't really move forward, I guess. I don't know legal proceedings on that. So. Yeah, but he still has child pornography. That's illegal, right? Yes, yes, that's illegal. But they had no so. evidence because his computer mysteriously vanished and he bought a new one, you know, the... Because oh, so he destroyed the evidence. Covering up his track. Yes, he but destroyed that, the evidence. That's illegal I too. told my mom about it's a, this. It's illegal, it's illegal yes. to dro- destroy evidence, so how is he not in jail? Well, because it was, it was a computer that was kind of like off the radar. It wasn't really his, so they never didn't, they didn't think to like look at that. I don't, I don't think either of us knows what you're saying. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I mean, um, yeah, so I, I'm, like I'm, I mean, you may not know. Were... Yeah. No, it was a com- I, I do know, but I, I was failing to explain that properly. Um, it was a computer okay, through it work. Doesn't, it doesn't usually matter if you're satisfied. The... Sorry. I just, if you're satisfied, we don't have to get into the details. If I just, I never quite understand how people get away with stuff, but you know, he, he obviously did. He had a good lawyer and obviously managed to get off on some kind of technicality. And so your mother is um, still married to him. Yes. And despite this accusation, your mother still is comfortable with your younger sister living with him. Yes. Right. What do you think of that? And that, well, that bothers me. I hate it. I really, I just have no words for how distraught it makes me. And that's why I I just want her to be out of there. Right. I'm, I'm so sorry. I mean, what an unbelievable burden to be placed on you. What an incredibly dysfunctional family to put it as nicely as humanly possible. What an incredibly creepy father and what an incredibly destructive mother. Yeah. I mean, the idea that these um, predilections, this is a sexual excitement over children, which is something completely incomprehensible to me. The idea of, of sexual excitement over children's images I mean, there's no such thing as child pornography. There's only child rape that is photographed or yeah. videoed, right? I mean, children can't yes. conceivably yes, consent, I... right? There's, a, there's only being turned on by images or videos of child rape. I agree with that, yes. That is so satanically creepy and evil that, like, the hairs are standing up on my forearms. I mean, there isn't an asteroid yeah, deep enough in space awful. that I would be happy to ship all those people to. 
And I would not myself trouble Tilbert overly much about their access to oxygen. So I'm incredibly sorry about all of this. Now, have you ever talked to your older sister about whether she was ever molested? I, I don't know because she lives, she lives far from me and I have a terrible relationship with her because of what she has done to me that I don't, I don't have much sympathy for her. I mean, it's awful if she also suffered that, but that her actions towards me are inexcusable in my opinion. So I can't, I, I, I think I can come to the conclusion for myself that, yes, she probably was. Does she have children? No. Oh, good. Do any of your other siblings have yeah, children? Yeah, no. no. Are they married? No, but my sister's in a relationship with a man that she'll probably get married to. Your elder sister? Yes. And does he know about her history or what she did? No, I she doubt needs it. To know. No. He needs to know. He needs to know. Yeah. He needs to know. You, you, you know, for, for the sake of kids, right? For the sake of kids that might come into the relationship. Yes. The man I, needs to know I, that his wife. I agree with that. Was a child molester when she was a child. Yeah, I've been trying to figure out how to address this with him because, I mean, he's also incredibly, like, abusive as a person. And um, I just don't know. Like, I don't have his email or his phone number or anything like that. I don't know how I would contact him. I don't, I don't know what to do about it. Yeah, and of course, I mean, he would be abusive, of course, right? Yeah, yeah, of So course, he, he may not care. Who knows? It might be in a grand family tradition to turn on for him, too. God. I mean, I think he would care because he he broke up with her. And you know how those things end up. Like, they break up, they get back together. I mean, he he, he would care. He would care. I just don't know how to get that information to him. Does anyone else in your family know his name? Oh, I mean, I know his name, but I mean, I guess I could just Google it. I don't know. I don't know Look, how I mean, to if, stock. If he had a million dollars for you, you'd find him, right? Yes. Yeah, this is more than a million dollars. So, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. I mean, if I married a woman or was even dating a woman and members of her family knew that she had molested her siblings and nobody told me. I mean, you. this is a kind of complicity, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you certainly don't owe her a lot of love, right? No, not at all. So... Did your mother know anything about the molestation? From my older sister? Yeah. Of course she did, yeah. Um, I confided in a close friend, and that close friend told 
her parents and then her parents then told my parents. And the only thing that ever happened was my mom went up to my sister, asked her, did you do this? My sister said no. And that was the end of it. Obviously, like I tried to speak out against that, but I mean, I'm living in her house. I'm trying to make it as, you know, I'm trying to cope and that's not going to help me until I'm not living in her house. And at the time, yeah. my sister still lived in the house, so it's kind of hard to say, yes, she did do this after I've suffered at the hands of her abuse for many, many years. Right. And your mother like never talked to you about it. in her cage. Of course not, no. Not unless I present? would bring it up. And <clears throat> Were you present in, with the conversation between your mother and your sister? No, it happened behind my back. How do you know if it happened? They, I guess I don't. I I don't have any idea if it happened or not. I mean, yeah, you know, generally people who really mean much. Generally, people who support and enable potential child molesters, fairly comfortable with lying too, right? Yeah. So you have no way of knowing if this ever occurred. No, I have no way of knowing. That's correct. I'm so sorry. Gosh, what a terrible introduction to both male and female role models. Yeah, it's been pretty awful. I mean, they are a minority of satanic figures in a world that is not exactly overfull with angels, but they are in a special layer of hell as far as human beings go. And I'm so sorry. What an unbelievably awful introduction to humanity. It's hard to think of it worse, really. Yeah. Now, as far as the sibling who gets left behind, that is tough. And I I truly yeah. sympathize with your concern for your youngest sibling, youngest sibling, your sister. That is a terrible thing to have as a burden on you, but I, you know, I understand it's not just that you're concerned she might not get a jump start in, in life. You're concerned that uh, she might be in a position of being around a potential child molester, right? Yes, yes. Go on. Tell me what you feel. No, I just said yes. It just no, but tell me what you feel. I'm feeling like because my experiences haven't been validated throughout my life, it's hard for me to stand up for her. And I have to do that. Like, I can't say that's okay anymore because I'm, I'm just being my mom. Right. You will never be your mom. I hope you understand that. The fact that you're talking about this stuff, the fact that you're on a con- even within a light year of a conversation like this, you will never be your mom. I mean, I hope you build that mental fence around your heart. You will never, ever be your mom. Come on, you'd spot a creep no, like I this. 
uh, from the dark side of the moon, right? Yeah. But you talked about terrible things. Your emotions really came out strongly when you thought of protecting or the desire to protect your sister, right? Yes. Something you said earlier, you said that you get snippy, and I asked you what snippy was, and you said, if your sister is snippy with your dad, you say, is there really any reason to speak to him like that, or there isn't any good reason to speak to him like that, right? Yes. Do you understand how and, different your state of mind is now than when you were saying that? Yes, and that place is toxic. It makes yeah. me, it, it enables me to become like my mother, and it's scary, and I hate it. Right. She has every right to be snippy with her dad, right? And yes, a whole lot she worse. Does, and I'm the same way with him. I can't, it's not like I can, I'm a shining example or anything. No, no, no. I'm, you, you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. Be more snippy with him. No, I mean, I'm, no, I know. I, I, what I'm saying is I am not at all like an example to how to treat my dad, right? Because I am equally as snippy for, you know, the same reasons as she is. No, but how how can you be fully who you are in the presence of your dad without launching yourself across the I table can't. at him? You can't, right? I can't. No. Right. So being there is to empty out yourself, right? To become the exactly. opposite of who you are. Exactly, and it's terrifying. Yeah, no, being around crazy or evil people, if you're not engaged in direct combat with them, hollows out the souls of the virtuous, right? We get turned yes. to ash, there's a little flicker of fire, and then they go out too, and we're all in the dark, right? Yes. What do you think your sister needs to see to be as repulsed by her situation as she should be, right? Because the identification of, of evil and danger is to be like you recoil from it. Like it's like a, touching an electrical plug with the live wire. Just, you, you recoil from it. That's, she's not there yet, right? So yeah. what does she need to see so that her house no, is like a I burning mean, house? She is. She's in hell there. That's why I feel extra guilty. It's just I can't get her out of there. I don't have the means to do so, and she doesn't no, have. No, but the I'm means asking, what are the means? Stuff. What are the means to do so? Oh, she needs to be like financially independent, or I need to be able to support her financially, which currently, like, I can't. We live in a place where it just it's impossible. Like, the prices are too high. Well, why do you need to live in that place? Oh uh, well, why I'm not go where going to. I'm going to. At the end of the year, I'm planning to do so. Um, I'm currently like in a contract. I mean, I guess I could always break that contract. Um. Listen, try this as a thought exercise. Okay. Try this as a thought exercise. Think of yourself when you're 90 
maybe you'll live longer, maybe you'll live to be whatever it's going to be. And you're on your deathbed and you're looking back at the year 2014. What do you most wish you had done? Moved. When? As soon as possible. With who? With my sister. Right. Your loyalty, if... Your loyalty, first and foremost, is to yourself. I understand your guilt. I really, really understand your guilt. But it's not yours. It's your parents. Right, I understand that, but it's still... I know, we all get that in our heads. But in our heart, it's not the same, right? Now, you know that thing, you you fly a plane, right? They, They always say, the oxygen masks drop down. What do they always say about those oxygen masks if you're traveling with a child? Help yourself before you can help others. Exactly. Put the oxygen mask on yourself and then take care of those around you, right? Yes. So. And that's why I felt... No, go ahead. That's why I felt like removing myself from the house was the best way to collect the resources to get her out there sooner. And I feel it's helping, but it's still hard. Right. Do you think she would come if you were in a place of security? She would? She would? Yes. I, I wouldn't even have to ask her. She would be right there. Yeah, she'd be like... You're like, I didn't even see you in the backseat of the car, and there you are, right? <laughs> She'd be like her shadow. Yeah. Right. Right. I would argue that your loyalty and the greatest good you can do, of course, is to get yourself out of a disgusting, vile, horrendous, immoral, evil cave of ugly prehistory. And... That is your loyalty. Your loyalty fundamentally is not to your contract or to your employer, though I certainly respect that as as an impulse. I'm but, sorry, too, because I love them so much. So You love what? Uh, it's hard, too, because I love them so much, the people that, that are the positive people that are in my life right now. But, I mean, obviously my loyalty is to my sister, so there's just all kinds of emotions. Well, I I don't automatically go to loyalty to your sister. I mean, for me, family is uh, not a moral category, but this is what you feel, and I'm I'm not going to disagree with you. I'm I'm just saying it shouldn't automatically be the case. No, I I agree with you. I'm not saying because she's my blood, but because obviously I wouldn't stay with my sister, yeah, like, I mean, I mean otherwise, of course, you'd we, try to be friends with your eldest sister, right? We so share the exact same, yeah, experience, and, you know, we were each other's support growing up. That's, like, all we had, so. And it doesn't have to be friends. forever. Like, I mean, if you if you move someplace that's cheaper, that's that you can get your sister out, you know, six months, you come back if you if you can, right? I mean, there's no reason why it has to be forever. If it's just for a place to get her on her feet or get her out of a situation so she can begin to detox, right? Yeah. And the thing, too, is um, she did have that opportunity for about three weeks with me at one point, and 
she just changed incredibly and it was amazing to watch her grow that much in like three weeks right and then like to send her back there right it's really awful right yeah i mean i'm old enough to be annoying and luxury that it's your relationships that count fundamentally yeah. you know your employer yeah. you may you may like them a lot they're not going to be holding your hand when you get old and sick you know that's yeah. family that's friends that's people who are close to you it's the relationships that matter everything great I mean, in life goes out of relationships i'm sorry they are they are my family and friends i mean they're not just the people that i work for but yes i see what you're saying Oh, okay, so it's good. You have good relationships with the people. Then won't they totally understand? Yes. Won't they? they would. You know, when you, yes, they would. Yeah, so well, maybe they can give you a chance to work remotely. Maybe there's something you can do. Maybe they can find you some cheap place to live. You know, If you engage a community in your yes. rescue attempt, it's just right? Hard to, yeah, it is, it's just hard sometimes to empower myself to speak to others about this. So, Of I course, abuses isolate, right? Yeah, yes. abusers always isolate. Always, always, always. And so uh, I would recommend, obviously, if you can talk to a therapist, that'd be fantastic. But if you have friends that are close that you can confide in, engage right. a community in helping you in this project. And then You'd be, you would be amazed at how generous people are when you are honest with them. No, I know. You know if you've grown up around selfish been... people, it's a... Yeah, if you've grown up around selfish people, it's truly amazing how generous people are when you open up to them and, and ask for their help. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if she's the youngest sibling, she's the youngest kid, right? So the kids, the parents are probably going to not want her to leave, right? She's the youngest. Yes. Yeah, so the mom's probably not going to want to be spending be... a whole lot of... Yeah, they're not going to want to spend a whole lot of time alone with each other, particularly your mom, right? Well, no, but I don't think she would be opposed to my sister leaving. I mean, my mom doesn't have much of a backbone in her track record, so if Ellen wanted to go, she wouldn't say anything. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't underestimate the degree of backbone your mom has. I mean, she survived investigations. Well, she kept her husband out of jail. She kept you guys isolated. She, you know, she may have lied to you about having the conversation with your eldest sister about molestation. I wouldn't necessarily underestimate the amount of spine your mom has. Yes, I shouldn't underestimate her. However, I know, well, no, I don't. Okay, yes, I shouldn't underestimate her. Yeah, I mean, I think the deathbed thing is important. I think that when you're older, you'll look back and say, so I basically, because you're saying at the end of the year, well, it's February, right? That's almost a whole year. That's a whole yeah, year well, of your sister in that yeah. household. Yeah. I mean, the soonest it could happen hopper. would be the summer, but it's, but Why that's is even it the soonest a stretch. It could happen? Uh, because, um, I wouldn't, like, I literally wouldn't be able to 
financially support her like until like a month or two like i need a couple of months to why does she have a huge cocaine habit or something why why is she to groceries right why is she so expensive <laughs> Uh, it's actually, it's, it's because I made an unwise decision because my parents obviously were pushing me to make this decision. And because I depended on them at the time I made this decision. And so I went to go live with my older sister, my abuser. And she, I mean, she stole a lot of money from me. She did terrible things to me. I lost my job while I lived there. So like, I don't have that much money anymore. <laughs> oh, I so see. I, I see. To... So you're trying to dig out, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. If you were to share your goals with your sister, would that help? I we talk about it every time I come over there because I mean I ha we have to have a, sh a strategy and and hope so I mean we talk about it all the time right right yeah if she has something to look forward to that could really help it it does help her good and I mean, she'll be able to, uh, you know, get a job or get some income and, and help out too, right? Yes, of course. Right. Well, I mean, it sounds like you're going to do some great things this year. I sure hope so, yes. I'm so sorry that this is even on your radar. I'm incredibly sorry about what your sister did to you. Um. You know, there's a, a line from one of my novels where the guy says uh, about his brother, he says, you know, I heard that phrase my whole life, we're his closest brothers. And it's true, we were his closest brothers until I remembered all of his early treachery. And then we weren't. <laughs> or there's a great line yeah. from an American writer, Gertrude Stein, about her brother, who she had a terrible relationship, a difficult relationship with. And she said to, about her brother, she said, little by little, we never met again. <laughs> and uh, sibling stuff is difficult. You know, 50% uh, of sibling relationships are estimated to be abusive. 50% yeah, of sibling relationships me. are estimated to be abusive. It's really tough. Uh, to, to, um, it's really tough to have sibling stuff. Uh, that, is, that is really difficult. I think that uh, siblings can be absolutely wonderful in life, but uh, oftentimes yeah, have, it's really like, the case. I, yeah, I have the positive coin and the extreme polar opposite of that as well. So yeah, I I yeah. see that firsthand. Yeah. Is there anything else I can help you with? Has, has this been useful? I'm I'm sorry that it's upsetting, but I assume it was not a truly horrible kind of upsetting. No, I mean, just the nature of everything that's happened was upsetting. It's not the conversation. The conversation's productive, and yes, it was useful. Is there anything that I could have done differently or better with, uh, uh, with the conversation? And no, 
that was that was effective. Thank you. And is there anything that you're going to kick yourself for not having talked about if we stop talking now? Not that I can think of at the moment. Well, then I just, what can I say? But thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you for your honesty. You know, we've never met and you're calling up and talking about this very, very difficult stuff. You know, for people who haven't done it, you don't know how hard it is. And I hugely appreciate your trust. It's incredibly hard to talk about this stuff. And I mean, you're anonymous and all that, but still, I mean, this is your life that you're opening up to a conversation like this. So I'm incredibly uh, honored that you would call up this conversation and and talk to me about this. I, I, you know, I hope I did right by you. I always try to, but I'm incredibly honored and and thank you so much for having the trust. I'm, I'm glad the conversation worked out for you, but, uh, and, and, Congratulations for coming through this childhood you had with such a giant heart and such compassion, concern, and care for others. You, I, I hope you get what an, a magnificent achievement that is. You did yes, not I, have empathy models. You, yeah, kindness, things. empathy, love. I, I mean, I, but you, you've got it in your heart. Yes, I know. So, good for you. Good for you. If you ever decide to become a mom, I hope that <clears throat> Paul Walker is reincarnated as your child. <laughs> if you didn't hear the earlier conversation, that means nothing to you. But uh, No, um, no, I heard it, yeah. No, oh, good, good, good. Oh. Um, no, congratulations. And uh, if you get a chance, of course, as always, uh, do drop us a line and uh, let us know. And if there's anything that, that I can do or, or Mike can do or we can do to help you with anything, um, anything at all, I, I hope that you will let us know. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you so much. Your... And very best of luck. Your sister is a very lucky thank young lady. All right, you. well, I'm sorry that we didn't get to the last two callers, uh, perhaps on Sunday, but I must rest my voice. I've got to yell at the planet on the radio in the morning. So uh, thanks as always. FDRURL.com forward slash donate if you would like to help out. This, as I believe, is the most essential conversation the world needs. And uh, you can certainly help us grow and spread it. We are just finishing up the studio over the next, uh, what, week or two, Mike? Yeah, it should be. should be a week or two. Fantastic. And um, I guess, uh, yeah, I've got some conferences coming up, which you can see at freedomainradio.com. And uh, have yourselves a wonderful week. Thank you so much to the callers. I will talk to you soon.